You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 120 of the Common Descent Podcast. This is it. Yep. The one you've been waiting for, the one you knew we knew when we started this podcast. If there is a single episode we know we're going to do, it's going to be this one. Yeah, we, we basically talked about it when we started the podcast. <laughs> when, when are we going to do this one? Because it's going to happen. Tyrannosaurs. The tyrant dinosaurs. We are talking about this episode. Tyrannosaurus rex, its extended family, their evolutionary history, what makes them so interesting, what makes them cool, what makes them so gosh-darned popular that everybody wants to hear a Tyrannosaurus episode. (laughs) (laughs) After the announcements and after the news, we'll get into our main discussion where we will talk about Tyrannosaur evolution, diversity, what we know about their lifestyles, and just revel in this group of animals that everybody knows is very cool. Yes, agreed. And when we say this is the one you've all been waiting for, we don't just mean that facetiously or idiomatically. This is the most requested episode topic in the history of the podcast. Our requesters for this episode are Jonathan, Ryan, Rebecca, Philip, Ryan, Christian, Zabby, Vrushali, Cobb K, Catherine, Sam, Evan, Levin, and James. (laughs) <laughs> yep that's everyone yeah, that's all of our listeners <laughs> requested this episode wow yeah i mean that's an awesome list but also yeah yeah honestly yeah. a little surprised it's not longer <laughs> yeah this is it we're talking about tyrannosaurs the most famous dinosaurs of all time specifically tyrannosaurus rex are probably the most famous fossil animal ever yes i'd say so We will get into all of that, just you wait. But first, some brief announcements. Number one, we have a Patreon. Oh yeah, we do. All the stuff that we do, we are supported on Patreon. It's a place where you can subscribe to us, make regular donations to support the podcast. We use those donations to keep the podcast hosted online, to update our equipment, to make cool trips, all sorts of stuff like that. And if you join us on Patreon, you get get rewarded at various levels with bonus content. We release director's notes for each episode these days. We do bonus news where we talk about extra news and also just chit-chat about our lives. And at a certain level, we will shout your name out on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome our new patrons, Stacia, Ben, Papa Papaya, (laughs) Galactify, and Janine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for your support. If you too out there would like to support the podcast, if you like the work that we do, or you want to put some financial support towards free science education for anyone who wants to listen to it, our Patreon is a great place to do that. Hey, one of the other benefits you get if you're a patron is you get to, at a certain level, ask questions for us to answer on the podcast which you'll get to hear in, I'm going to guess, about two hours from now. Yeah, probably. This is where we have a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) Also, here's a new feature. If you want to support the podcast, but you don't want to subscribe on a monthly basis like Patreon does, we are setting up one-time donation links for uh, PayPal donations. 
We will be putting those in the episode description and on our blog, so if you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that as well. As always, we appreciate all the support we get, financial or emotional or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, download counts. (laughs) Download counts. Hey, speaking of download counts... If you follow us on social media, you may have noticed that we recently hit a pretty incredible milestone. Podbean, the site that we host our podcast on, let us know recently, even gave us a special badge on our site for it. We have officially hit one million downloads. Yeah! Our podcast has been downloaded a million times. Which is so cool. How cool. Now, I know that there are some people out there worrying about the details of that. Podbean counts downloads from a whole variety of podcasting sites. So regardless of where you're downloading it, Podbean's probably counting it. Even if you stream it instead of downloading the file, that still counts. Don't worry, your listens are being counted in the grand number. Yes. Unless you listen to us on YouTube where we have a further uh, over 100,000 views. So yeah. that little bump, little, little, little <laughs> bump up from our YouTube followers, which is great. Just put that on top. Just a little, little cap, little cherry on top. It's so amazing. It's it's one of those, like, you know, the people when we hit, you hit New Year, and they're like, it's just another day of the year. It's like, yeah, yeah, just it's, another number. That's just another, you know, right. set of downloads where st- the podcast is still chugging along, you know, normally. It's not like suddenly things change. But it's a million downloads. That's it's cool. Million. It's a million. We gained a new digit. Yeah. I, we haven't done that in a while. Oh, it's, no, it's you, you, you people. You're amazing. You, you're amazing. Hey, when I was looking on Podbean, it was like, congratulations, there are a million downloads. You can get a badge for it. And I clicked and it was like, here are all the badges. And a million was followed by two million and five million and <laughs> 10 million and 100 million. And I was like, all right, fine. So, hey, let's hit those next yep. milestones. We've got a lot of badges to get. We're all in it together now. <laughs> <laughs> We're dedicated. Thank you to everybody who listens to our podcast, who supports us, who shares what we do with other people. It It's really fantastic. It's, it's amazing. Thank you so much. One more announcement to make, and this one is a somber one. We have announced the last couple episodes, our plans to attend Dragon Con this year, as we have in the past. Unfortunately, we've had to decide not to attend Dragon Con this year. Yes. Uh, It was a tough decision we were hoping to attend, but with the ongoing COVID situation, it just doesn't feel like the safe choice for us. We're just not comfortable attending in person this time. Yeah, we we were getting excited. We were hoping that things would be to where we could go, but it's just not seeming like the right choice at this yeah, point. We, we were hoping things would start looking better and it has turned out to be the opposite. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, to everyone who is hoping to see us at Dragon Con this year or to hear our panels afterwards, our apologies. Yeah, we're very sorry. Yeah. But we will have other exciting things coming up. I, October is right around the corner, which means Spooky is coming up. We've got other things we often do towards the end of the year. So we've got other things to look forward to. Unfortunately, we'll just have to see. Hopefully next year, uh, we will be back in person at Dragon Con. Something to look forward to. Yeah, surely next year. It's got, it's got to. It's <laughs> one, got to. One would hope. But thank you, of course, to all of our fans who do come to see us at Dragon Con and look forward to seeing us. We really appreciate it. Uh, so hopefully more in the future. Yes, we really appreciate it. And we'll miss seeing you this year. We will. And I think that's quite enough news from us. Yes, I think so. So it's time for news from elsewhere. That seems fitting. Every episode, we have a news section where we pick some of the new news out there in paleontology or earth science or related sciences. 
to keep everybody up to date. Will, have you brought something to share with the class? I have. I've brought some news about Venom and how it may have affected the evolutionary history of insects and fish. Oh, Venom, famously from our Ichthyosaurs episode. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a deep inside joke that uh, we... we If you get that joke, thank you for getting us to a million downloads. Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So this research is looking at the extreme diversity in insects and fish because they are extremely diverse. They sure are. And is looking to venom as potentially one of the causes of that high diversity. Okay. This is research by Kevin Arbuckle and Richard Harris in BMC Ecology and Evolution, the Journal of BMC Ecology and Evolution. And the article we'll be linking to in the blog post, there is a blog post with lots of pictures and links and stuff, is a press release from Swansea University in phys.org. So, fish and insects, being the focus of this study, are notable as two of the most diverse groups of animals on the planet. Yes. By a wide margin. Just to give perspective on what that means, there are over 30 million species of fish, which makes up almost half of all vertebrate species. It sure does. And there's over a million species of insects. At least. Which is about three quarters of invert species. So very, very diverse groups. And there's been the question of why. But why? Why are these so diverse? You know, what is allowing them to diversify so much more than so many other groups? One of the obvious connections to diversification is often predator-prey interaction. True. You know, that's what is thought to have been a huge driving force during the Cambrian explosion of that arms race between predator and prey trying to outdo one another, causing, ad- you know, pressuring natural selection into adaptations and di- diversification. Sure, sure. Episode 9. And a oft-used tool in both predation and predator deterrent is venom. Yeah, episode 97. Yes, which is well-known in both of these groups. Yeah, these are very venomous groups. Yes, indeed. Today, about 10% of fish families and about 16% of insect families contain venomous species. And it is thought that among the two groups, in fish, venom evolved somewhere around 20-ish times independently and around 28 times in insects. So it's not just like it popped up and then became popular. It's just something these groups do over and over and over again in a decent percentage of the groups. Yeah. So this research is looking at, is there a connection between those two things? Venom being a common tool among this group and the high diversity of these groups. So they looked at a phylogenetic study of the groups, an overreaching perspective on all the evolutionary histories between the two groups. Exactly. To look at diversification rates among venomous and non-venomous groups. Okay. To see if there is a significant difference. Ooh. And what they found is that venomous families in fish and insects have diversification rates roughly twice as high as non-venomous families. Whoa. So they are producing new species at roughly twice the rate of a non-venomous group. Interesting. And so it could very likely be that having venom is such a versatile tool, it can let you defend yourself with venomous spines or a venomous sting that will keep things from wanting to eat you, but it also can be used to hunt Mm -hmm. and detain prey, that it just is 
allows for so many options that diversification is very easy when Venom is added to the equation. It makes me wonder if Venom is particularly good at becoming specialized. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many different types of Venom that have evolved repeatedly in multiple groups that maybe Venom... I, I wonder if it's related that Venom can allow you to more easily specialize in different types of prey. Yeah, which would make perfect sense. Because there are lots that have targeted Venom. This is, this is meant to kill you. Yeah. Now, another fun note that they mentioned in the news article while talking to the authors is that... When it is predicted and estimated that many of the venomous groups in fish arose, you know, originated, are heavily centered around the late Cretaceous and the Eocene. Mm -hmm. And there is, they state very clearly, tentative suggestion <laughs> that this is not part of this research, but that they did notice this while researching that that does sync up with some interesting things that might be why we see an influx of venomous fish during those times. Late Cretaceous is when a lot of marine predators disappeared and then one particular group of marine predators came onto the scene, mosasaurs, which could potentially be a huge driving force for adding venom to your defensive line. And then in the Eocene, whales Oh, the become, venom might have diversified in response to new threats in to the new ocean. Big, uh, big predators. Big predators, successful predators. Interesting. Now, once again, that is not the focus of this research. That is a very tentative right. suggestion, but Here, it was too interesting not to mention. Here's an interesting little possible correlation just for you all to think about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, it looks like being venomous might have been part of the source of this extreme what they called super diversification in insects and fish if only there was another group of animals that were very <laughs> commonly venomous that, and well studied that they could do a similar uh, follow-up study on uh, perhaps the most diverse group among the lizards <laughs> well it got me because now I'm, I'm in my head i'm thinking are the venomous snake families more diverse clearly they're not the most diverse because things like colubrids exist mm -hmm. but now i want to see a study like this on snakes yeah because even if vipers and elapids diversify rapidly yeah because even if they aren't the most diverse right now their diversification rate could still be very yeah. high interesting and if not then what's the deal with fish and insects mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and is it does it have to do with how they're using it defensive versus uh, as a predation uh, tool Ooh, yeah. so many questions it's pretty neat. Very cool. Well, my first bit of news has nothing to do with that at all. It's it's about an animal with a pointy thing. Okay. So with a power cone? Multiple pointy things with power cones. <laughs> <laughs> uh woolly mammoths. Alright. Uh, specifically a study on a tusk of an Arctic woolly mammoth. Specifically the chemical signals that that tusk reveals about the entire lifespan of a single mammoth. Wow. And where it went in its lifetime. I'm, I'm ready to hear this biography. It, it's pretty cool. This is research by Matthew Wooler et al. in the journal Science. And in our blog post for this episode, we will link to an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Riley Black. This study focuses on a single specimen of woolly mammoth, Mammothus primigenius, that has been dated to 17,100 years old, roughly, from the Arctic of North America, but specifically, 
the tusk of this mammoth. The tusk, which is about 1.7 meters long, so some five feet long, and within it preserves a record of the animal's life. Because tusks grow throughout your whole life, Mm -hmm. and as you live, you pick up chemical signals from your surroundings, and those are preserved in the tusk. Yeah, as you're building the material for the tusk, you're experiencing different things, so what you're building it with is slightly different. Specifically, they tested isotopes, uh, particularly strontium isotopes, which are often linked to locations. So different geologic formations, different bedrocks, different foundations of regions in the world have different makeups of strontium. This element, the isotope ratio, the composition of what different types of strontium you have, will depend on your local rocks and minerals and geology. Plants pick up nutrients from the environment so they inherit that strontium signal and then mammoths eat plants so this mammoth's tusks are loaded with these varying strontium signals from the tip of its tusk which was formed in its youngest years all the way to the base of the tusk up by the face which was formed in its later years at about they said 28 years old The estimate of about how old this mammoth was when it died. So they measured these strontium isotopic signals and then compared them to maps that lay out strontium signals from different geographic locations in that region to see where does this match up on the map? Where was this mammoth at different parts of its life? With this, they were able to track a lifetime of movements from this mammoth. Here's a brief overview. In its youngest years... This mammoth's isotopes indicate that it was spending most of its time in the interior of Alaska, near the Yukon River Basin. Starting at about two years old, it began a pattern of moving north between the Alaska and Brooks Mountain ranges, and spent the next decade and a half moving north and south in this region, which they interpret as possibly being migratory herd paths that's yeah that sounds very migratory sounds like what elephants do today as they go up and down within their broad range but at 16 years old there is a change in the patterns that we see in this mammoth it starts spending much more time farther north beyond the mountains and the arctic circle and much more time at higher elevations as to why a mammoth would suddenly at the age of 16 change what it was doing A clue might be in its DNA, which the authors were able to get enough of to suggest that it was a male. Yep, that's what I was wondering. And that's what we see males do today. They grow up with a herd, and then when they reach maturity, they leave. They're sent off to the Night's Watch. (laughs) They go, yeah, he he went north. Yep. He went up north. The entire time, you're like, he went north, higher elevations, (laughs) right about 16. I'm like, so he took took the black. (laughs) He took the, yeah. (laughs) So this might very well, again... Hard to say for sure, but the evidence does seem to match what we would expect if this was a a male leaving its herd to go off living his life individually. And then the last few inches of the tusk, as it was described in the article, show much less movement. So this is in the late 20s of this animal's life. Much less movement concentrated to an area north of the mountains, no longer venturing far and wide staying in a particular place. And other isotopes, notably oxygen isotopes, from that last section of the tusk, 
show signals that we often associate with scarcity of food and cold environments that, according to the article, the authors interpret that the mammoth likely died in the winter or spring. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, I love how much detail we can get from studies like this. It's a biography and a tusk. Like this, we might as well be have its diary entries. Like right. it's, it's just, so have a, a tracker. Yes. <laughs> implanted on it and follow it like the great white sharks. Abs- like it's so crazy that we can tell it down to that detail. Uh, and yeah, that's awesome. If it is indeed showing a male pattern of growing that it left the herd like today's elephants do yeah. to go be a solitary grumpy male. Yeah. Going out uh, to adventure all on its own. That's male pattern boldness. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe we'll cut that out later. <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> now there are broader implications to this beyond just, Oh, this is super cool on the face of it. Understanding the ranges and how mammoths were moving Understanding that this one at least had a broad range over the course of its life can indicate their resource needs and that towards the end of the Ice Age, changing climates might have broken up their range, which could have been a contributor to decreasing populations. There are broader implications about, okay, well, if this is what a male looks like, can we do this with a female mammoth and see if it's any different? And in Riley's article, there's a great note toward the end talking about how this information can be combined and compared with other information. For example, uh, a record of what we understand about environmental change over time in different regions and archaeological sites that we can start superimposing maps. Like, yeah, here are all the archaeology sites. Here are the places where we can record changes or grasslands or forests or shrinking ice sheets. Here are the maps of mammoth migration paths. What trends do we notice when we overlap the data? Yes. We we are we talk a lot about how it's cool to be living in the future. Mm-hmm. We are able to start building Pleistocene maps. That's so cool. It's it's pretty amazing. Well, and, and it's that cross-field interdisciplinary aspect of taking paleo, taking archaeological and not just studying remains, but studying the chemical aspects of those remains. I love it so much. Yeah, this is a very cool study. It's it's it is very reminiscent of how we map space because we yeah. can't see it all <laughs> visually. So a lot of its radio signals and a lot of its uh, other measurements, and this is very similar. And that's awesome. I now insist that we all donate to research to do this for every tusked animal that exists. Agreed. I, I want every proboscidean, every elephant through time, <laughs> to have its isotopes tracked. <laughs> well, another cool thing that stands out to me about this is you know, mentioning it migrating earlier in life and then going off on its own, which is very much what we would expect from an elephant-like animal. Mm-hmm. But also, hey, very much like we expect from an elephant-like animal. Like, yeah, we we always knew that they were shaped like an elephant, but hairy. Uh, but we didn't. We don't actually have a lot of info of how they definitely behave, right. even though we always have assumed right. they, they are closely related to modern elephants. But why would it be at all a sure thing that a group of elephants living in Alaska and northwestern Canada 
would act the same as a group of elephants living in Africa. Yeah, because we have different elephants today, and they do behave differently. Mm -hmm. So getting uh, some potential evidence for it, yeah, no, they were very elephanty in behavior as well, yeah. is cool. It's that's a, that's very interesting. Very cool. Hey, elephants, episode 66. Yeah. Hey, Tusks, episode 107. <laughs> Man, it's going to just start stacking. Hey, the Pleistocene Megafunnel Extinction, episode 25. We have a lot of episodes now. We can do this a lot. Every episode of the podcast is now going to be like a Wikipedia entry where there's little links to other places. The line of numbers. <laughs> Reference numbers are just going to get longer and longer. Well, my next bit of news also has nothing to do with that. Oh, great. But that's okay, because it has to do with Crocs, so it's awesome. Episode two. <laughs> this is about a new Jurassic Croc cousin that mm -hmm. doesn't quite fill a gap necessarily, but but is from a time where most of this group that we have are from the ocean, while this one is from the land. Oh, interesting. This is research by Fernando Novas et al. in Scientific Reports, and the article we'll be linking to is by Enrico de Lazaro in SciNews. This new Croc is named Berksuchus malengrandensis and is from the Upper Jurassic, about 148 million years old. It was found in the Toki Formation in southern Chile. Now, it's not much of a specimen. It's only part of the skull, the back portion of the top of the skull, uh, some vertebrae pieces, uh, some of the lower limbs, and it looked like from the, one of the pictures they showed a couple of the osteoderms, potentially. Uh, the armor bones and yes. the skin. So they have enough to get an idea of what this might have been shaped like, but they don't have the full animal, the full face. It is what is known as a basal mesocrocodilian. It is not in the group of our crocs today. Right. Crocodilia proper that includes our modern croc skaters, gharials. Exactly. But a, a, an ancient cousin. Yes. So this group of mesocrocodilia includes ours, but also a bunch of other relatives. Right. The extended croc family. And this one is notable for being one of the very few non-pelagic Jurassic crocodiliforms. Non-swimming. Yes. Mm. Most of the ones known from the Jurassic, especially in South America, where this is the first non-pelagic crocodiliform from this time period. Oh. Most of them are known from the ocean, which we talked about in our crocs episode. The Thaladosuchians were marine crocodiliforms. These were marine crocodiliforms that had adapted to the ocean extremely with even f fluted tails and some even with very paddle-like limbs. Yeah, these were crocs trying to be mosasaurs before mosasaurs. Mosasaurs episode 51. <laughs> and while there were many land-dwelling crocodiliforms, you know, uh, uh, mesocrocodilians, they're not known from this age as well, especially from this area. So this is just another a, a, a new bit of data for that group the land dwellers yeah which is cool this is also found on the same level as a few notable dinosaurs like a number of different sauropods Ooh, episode 101 <laughs> the <laughs> long neck dinosaurs yes the big long neck plant eaters and a herbivorous theropod chileosaurus oh so it was also would have been <laughs> surrounded by dinosaurs had, had dinosaur neighbors yep now this was not a big Croc. You know, croc in quotes, not right. crocodile. Croc in the, the broadest sense. Exactly. Sensulato. It's all right. The Latin fans will get it. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was fairly small. Uh, they estimate total length would be about 70 centimeters. So 
27 inches, just a little bit more than two feet. Okay. So little baby croc. Pretty small, which is not uncommon for terrestrial, you know, land-based crocodiliforms. Uh, There's lots of small three, four foot running around, you know, scurrying, monitor lizard-esque crocs. (laughs) And it falls within the body size range of a lot of other Triassic, Triassic and Jurassic crocodiliform, terrestrial crocodiliform. So this is not unexpected. It does have a very croc-like face. It seems to be pretty flattened top to bottom, kind of like what we see in today's crocs, but probably not as long and wide. Even though they don't have the snout, it doesn't look like it was forming that way from what they have. And whilst they are missing most of the face, the teeth they do have are small and sharp, which suggests that it was a carnivorous animal, which is pretty yeah. par for the course for this group. Makes sense. Probably feeding on small animals, you know, inverts very likely, maybe fish, maybe small vertebrates. Watch out for that venom. <laughs> this one was helping them diversify. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. <laughs> And according to the skull, it doesn't seem like it would have been taking down large things or even be able to take down and tear apart large food. So it, it gotcha. may have lacked the characteristic strong bite of today's crocs. Not, not quite as heavily muscled as we're familiar with with crocs. This kind of study is subtly exciting because it's very often, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we have this partial remains of the first terrestrial croc cousin from this time, from this area. And it seems like a, a small, you know, that cool. We don't, we haven't learned a ton, but it, it has the, the claim of being the first. And what is really exciting to me about that is not the bragging rights of like, Hey, we did it. We set a new record <laughs> first, but it's the, it, we, we are started. Mm-hmm. We've started exploring this new region and habitat for these animals. Someday in the future, there will be a review paper that goes over South American terrestrial crocodiliforms and says the first one was Berksuchus from back in 2021. And since then we have learned a bunch more about this group of animals. Like this is step one, which is a very cool thing to think about. Like, like every first in paleontology is like, yes, the f- someday this will be referenced back and they'll be like, Oh, we knew so little back then. Yeah. It's not likely to be the first <laughs> and only it yeah. is very hopefully the first of many. So hopefully there will be more Crocs from South America, South America episode 74. (laughs) Well, our last bit of news for this episode, keeping with our trend, has nothing to do with that Croc, (laughs) but it has a lot to do with us. Like you and me? You and me and all of our listeners. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently released its sixth assessment report. So everyone's talking about climate change. I mean, everyone is always talking about climate change, but now there's a big new report out about it. And since this is a topic that concerns earth science, that concerns information from the past, and which concerns all of us. Our survivability. This is an important thing to talk about. So let's talk a bit about what has been coming out of the sixth IPCC assessment report. You can read the report online. It is available. Uh, Transparency is one of the sort of goals and hallmarks of the IPCC reports. You can read the report. There are also several, like, summaries that they have released. There's a policymaker summary. There's an FAQ. We will link to an article at Yale Climate Connections by Dana Nucitelli, uh, who I think does a pretty good job describing what the report talks about and links to those other places where you can read more stuff. 
So for people, if anyone isn't familiar with the details of how the IPCC puts reports together, the IPCC has been around for many, many years as a body to assess the science of climate change. Specifically, these reports are not original research. This isn't like they went out and did studies. It's a review. Mm -hmm. In this case, the sixth assessment report reviews more than 14,000 scientific studies from the past eight years since the last report came out, the fifth one, with the goal to evaluate the big picture. Yes. Looking at all the reports, all the climate studies that are done to sort out which information is going to be most useful for planning for the future from the perspective of governments, policymakers, businesses, individuals, and so on. The panel itself is hundreds of volunteer scientists who work together to assess all the evidence, then various experts and various government representatives are on hand to review the various drafts of the report as it goes through the stages. Uh, This is actually one of the reasons why IPCC reports have a reputation for being conservative in their sort of predictions and assessments, Mm -hmm. because hundreds of scientists and experts, uh, more than 100 countries' governments sign off on it. Yeah. So you get a lot of filters of people who are like, all right, well, we should be more careful about this. All right, let's scale this back. Yeah, what we're getting is what everyone was able to agree upon. Yeah, and if you've ever tried to agree upon things with a group. (laughs) This report actually is the report from Working Group 1, which is devoted to laying out the science. In the coming months, we'll see Working Group 2, which is focused on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. And working group three, which is uh, all about mitigation. So this one is just, here's the science. Yeah, here's what currently it's saying. As we've discussed before, uh, particularly in episode 113 about paleoclimatology, climate studies are built on modern and historical observations of the climate, paleoclimate data of what the climate has done in the past, and simulations based on all that other data. Here's what happens when XYZ happens. Let's build a model out of it. This report, uh, there are a few interesting newish things that people have made note of, but a lot of it reinforces earlier stuff. There has been more warming in the last 50 years than in any 50-year period we have seen in the last 2,000 years. One article that I read noted that there has been no multi-century period hotter than today since about 100,000 years ago. We are noticeably warm. The new report updates some famous old models, like the famous hockey stick graph. Mm -hmm. Uh, It extends it in both directions. So now (laughs) it's a little bit longer in the front end, and it's a little bit taller at the end, where it shows how warm things are now. Also updates a famous graph uh, that you may have, uh, many of you may have seen, which compares what climate change would look like with and without human influence. So this is a famous chart that has been going around for uh, quite a while now that is a graph of temperatures over the last uh, 100 years or so that shows what we've observed from uh, changing temperatures in that time, what our models estimate we should have observed in that time, and what our models estimate if we remove human emissions. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's this fascinating chart because it shows our model estimate and what we've seen, both following basically the same trajectory, 
And the model that removes human emissions is a straight line. Yep. Without that rise in temperature. This report also uh, makes note of stronger than ever before correlations between changing climates and the sort of dramatic issues we've been seeing recently. Wildfires, droughts, flooding. These sort of things are notoriously very difficult for scientists to say, okay, we have data that says this wildfire was caused by climate change. That's very difficult because the climate system is so complex. This report makes a stronger than ever correlation that says, yeah, we are more certain than we have ever been before based on the data that droughts and flooding and wildfires are being influenced by human impacts on the climate. This uh, report specifically focuses on what they call compound effects. That is, the dangers not of those individual changes, but of how they build on each other. So that heat and drought together can lead to more wildfires or to agricultural loss. This report stresses that the sort of individual changes we see to weather and climate systems can actually exacerbate each other. Yeah. I've also seen a number of places note the report's uh, emphasis on sea level rise. Uh, This report, here they report that the models we currently have predict that we have already committed to several meters of sea level rise. (laughs) In In the coming centuries, sea level will rise at least several meters, regardless of what we change about our... Uh, future path and our relationship with the climate it will raise much much more uh if we make things worse oh yeah like it's we are already at that point every step we take past now continuing as we are will just extend how many meters we have to expect and how far into the future it's going to last a lot of things focus on the report sort of here's all the terrible stuff that's happening but One aspect of the report that gets a lot of attention and which I think is really interesting is that they include a bunch of emission scenarios. In this report, these are called shared socioeconomic pathways. Basically, what this is, is just like the model of what does the climate look like under with human emissions versus without human emissions. This report brings in five hypothetical pathways that say what happens if we take aggressive action to reduce emissions? What happens if we don't do anything to reduce emissions and it stays as it is now? What happens if we start doing, making more emissions? It predicts a bunch of different scenarios based on what we do. Yeah, it's not just how it is and if there was nothing but a range of options. Yes, it's looking at possible futures. In fact, in the article we will link, Uh, Dana relates it to Doctor Strange from Infinity War, (laughs) looking at possible futures. (laughs) How many of those do we win? I want to make a Loki reference, but I feel like it's still too new. Too new. Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) They lay out five cases ranging from, yeah, if we really double down and just go, all right, no more emissions, let's do everything we possibly can, which most experts agree is not very likely. Nope. To the worst case, which is, let's start doing more. Let's reverse all of our progress. In for a penny, in for a pound. Now let's just do it. We're already on this path. Which, most experts seem to agree, is not very likely. Mm -hmm. Like, we are continue, we are already on a path towards reducing emissions. In this report, the second best scenario, 
that they model is essentially continuing on the path we're on now. Not staying where we are, but continuing to take action gradually at reducing emissions, adding in new policies. Uh, They note that emission growth slowed quite a bit in the last decade. Like emissions, we haven't stopped, but they are go. They are growing slower, mm-hmm. and they noted a drop in six to seven percent of global emissions in 2020. Uh, Not because of probably policies and stuff, but because <laughs> society shut down everywhere. Pause button. So we, we it will rebound. Mm-hmm. Like we're probably not going to stay low, but there is progress being made, and it is possible to cut down on emissions. On the one hand, on sort of a a downside, every scenario they ran puts us above the target that has been laid out the last couple of years, that 1.5 degrees of warming since pre-industrial times, Mm -hmm. uh, that we were several years ago sort of saying, we can stop before we get there. Let's let's try to do that. Every scenario says we're going to hit that by 2040. We're going to go over budget. Regardless. Although the best case scenario says we might, we, we could come back down mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. But uh, they also note that in the best case scenarios, including the one that is the path we are on, if we continue being more and more conscious, we could see discernible improvements in air quality, greenhouse gas no- amounts within decades, which I think is a really exciting thing to hear because one of the things that I find makes the issue of climate change so daunting is the thought that, you know, we can start making change now and it'll be good for the next generation. Exactly. Like none of us were the cause of the industrial revolution. Right. You know, so the what kicked off this trend is very detached from everyone alive today. And it often feels like the solution will be equally detached from everyone alive today. Right. Uh, but this is and, and I saw an Atlantic article that put it in a slightly more targeted way that said climate change is now acting on political timescales. Yes, <laughs> that. Yeah. The decisions you make now will affect your constituents. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, things are going to change for better or for worse within your term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously the new report is not bright, shun- sunny skies like. Things are bad. Yes. We've known things are bad. This report looks at a lot of the data and says, hey, the last eight years of 14,000 studies have said we were right last time. Mm -hmm. Things continue uh, to be on a path uh, of trouble for us in the future. But their models of our future scenarios suggest that we are at least a little bit on the right path. Yes. It is possible to mitigate a lot of the, the the remaining effects if we keep doing the sort of things we have started to do. Well, and this is where really where that mentality. That's another thing that can make it daunting is that feeling of, but what can what can I do or what can we as a city do compared to the world? Mm-hmm. And yes, no, that is an issue. You know, a lot of the big problems are things that are going to have to be made on huge, far-reaching policy standards yeah this this is an intergovernmental panel yes exactly but we've already been making a lot of the progress that needs to continue to be made like we're, we're already heading in a more correct direction 
mm-hmm. if we're wanting to reverse some of these effects. So it's it's not like we're having to start from zero. It's already the ball's rolling in the right direction if we just keep pushing it that keep way. Pushing. So, hey, everyone, what we're doing, it's working a bit. Yes. If you, uh, like me, feel horribly daunted by just the discussion of climate change and what we can possibly do about it, I could recommend a few resources. They are listed in the end of the blog post for episode 113 of this podcast. Also, at the end of that episode, 113, our guest, Dr. Rachel Lupian, lists a few of her favorite uh, sources of information and I will reiterate a reference that she made in that episode, the podcast How to Save a Planet by Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Alex Bloomberg is a podcast all about climate change and climate science and climate policy. And I have listened to several episodes of it. I'm not totally caught up. I'm sure they will eventually talk about this report. It's a really well done podcast that goes over the issues we're facing, and what people are doing about it. I listened to the first few episodes of that podcast, and I felt hopeful. <laughs> I was like, oh man, the kids are doing it. It's it's great. So if you're looking for places to get more information and get more engagement in the issues and subject of climate change, I recommend How to Save a Planet, and check out our blog post from episode 113. We've got a bunch of links for more information about that. And with that, I think that's enough news Yes, I agree. Let's talk about dinosaurs. Yes, a- after that somewhat sombering note, who wants to talk about T-Rex? Let's talk about T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> after the break. In the year 1902, famed fossil hunter Barnum Brown was digging in a place called Hell Creek, Montana, when he found a partial skeleton of a fossilized theropod. These are the two-legged dinosaurs, mainly carnivorous. Surely he knew, as soon as he found it, that he had found something very exciting. This particular skeleton was notable because it was huge. (laughs) These bones, clearly belonging to a carnivorous dinosaur, were noticeably enormous compared to previous discoveries. He sent it to Henry Fairfield Osborne, a notorious early paleontologist. The Green Goblin. (laughs) That's the one. Who described it in a paper in 1905, who described its size as greatly exceeding that of any carnivorous land animal hitherto described. Hitherto is a good good word to use when we're talking about giant predators. (laughs) And that, that year, that paper in the year 1905... Osborne gave this dinosaur the name Tyrannosaurus rex. Hey. In 1906, Barnum Brown found another skeleton of Tyrannosaurus rex. This one, a nearly complete skull and skeleton. The first really good view of T-Rex. This one went on to be a prominent research subject because it was extremely complete and extremely exciting, and it also went on to go on display at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and thus the public was introduced to T-Rex. These were not the first T-Rex fossils. Oh. In the year 1900, two years before he found that first skeleton I mentioned, Brown discovered another partial skeleton in Wyoming, which he sent to Osborne, 
which was another theropod dinosaur, a carnivorous dinosaur. This one had osteoderms, skin armor bones, uh, which turned out later to be ankylosaur. Uh, armored dinosaur osteoderms that did not belong to the carnivorous dinosaur. <laughs> you got my hopes up and dashed them spectacularly. Osborne named it Dynamosaurus Imperiosus. Nice. Which, not long afterwards, he realized was the same as Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> In the 1890s, Othniel Charles Marsh, famed early American paleontologist, remember him from the Bone Wars episode, episode 58, examined some fossil remains that he identified as having belonged to a giant ornithomimosaur, the ostrich dinosaurs. He named it Ornithomimus grandis. Uh, Later on, it was realized that it was, in fact, Tyrannosaurus rex. (laughs) And also in the early 1892, Edward Drinker Cope, remember him from the Bone Wars episode, episode 58, identified some fragments of vertebrae from South Dakota as some sort of ceratopsid, a horned dinosaur, which he named Manospondylus gigas, later determined to actually be Tyrannosaurus rex. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't until we had those complete skeletons of T-Rex that we were able to go, oh, okay, this vertebra is actually this animal here. It's it's like (laughs) everyone was working with partial puzzles, and then finally someone wheeled in a complete puzzle and went, oh, it's a castle. Oh... (laughs) And indeed, even earlier than that in the 1800s, paleontologists in North America were finding lots of big theropod teeth that received various names like Dinodon and Oblisodon, many of which have been since re-identified as Tyrannosaurus rex. So we were finding T-Rex for decades. <laughs> before we knew what it was. Before we knew what it was. Incidentally, I should take a moment here to take a step aside. The reason, so we've talked before about how naming conventions work and that the name that comes first supersedes names later if they turn out to be the same thing, mm-hmm. which is why Brontosaurus got dropped because it was named two years after Apatosaurus and then they turned out to be the same thing. Dynamosaurus was named in the same paper as Tyrannosaurus, but if I remember right, it was named later in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so it was typed later. Yeah. And Ornithomimus obviously is already another animal. Manospondylus is a very interesting story because Manospondylus, the name for the vertebra, which is the vertebra that I posted a picture of (laughs) as the teaser for this episode on our social media, that was named well before T-Rex and by all official rules should supersede the name Tyrannosaurus Rex. Indeed. Following the official rules. However, because that synonymization, that, that... sort of official, yeah, these are the same, didn't come up until significantly later. The official statement from the ICZN, the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, this is from their website. The name Tyrannosaurus rex has been used for about a hundred years, nearly as long as its synonym, Manospondylus gigas, had been forgotten. (laughs) Basically, their argument is, No, we're not going to change a hundred years of naming and research for another name that no one had ever heard of. Basically, their argument is, no, it's T-Rex. Yeah, they went, so who wants to be the one to announce to everyone that we're calling it Mandospondylus now? Nobody? Okay. Yeah, that's basically who they went. So yeah, uh, technically this should be overruled. 
but nah. no, we can't. No one would be happy about that. <laughs> Including us. It would be so confusing. Now, even back then in the early 1900s, we knew, we I wasn't there, but paleontologists knew that T-Rex was not the only member of its group. This broader group called Tyrannosaurs. Around those times, paleontologists had already identified Albertosaurus, Gorgosaurus, Dryptosaurus. There were a handful of other species, sort of in the, the family vicinity of T-Rex. All with cool names. All with very cool names. But for a long time, we only had a few species of Tyrannosaurs, and by far most of our information came from Tyrannosaurus rex. So it was not only a very popular, sort of publicly popular dinosaur, it went on to show up in movies and books and just be the most famous dinosaur of all time, arguably the most famous fossil animal of all time. I have heard Dr. Thomas Holtz Jr. referred to it as the most famous scientific name in history. Probably. Tyrannosaurus rex, genus and species. I, I hear it used more often than I hear Homo sapiens. Yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> but scientifically, it was also our main window into this group of animals. And then, of course, you know, little kids grew up learning about T-Rex and then became paleontologists and wanted to keep studying T-Rex. Yep. Guilty. As the century went on, other Tyrannosaurs showed up over time. For example, in the 1950s, there was Tarbosaurus from Mongolia. In the 1970s, we got Despletosaurus from North America and Elioramus from Mongolia. But the real shift in our list of Tyrannosaur species has happened within the last couple of decades. These days, there are about 30 known species of Tyrannosaur, more than half of which were discovered since the year 2000. Wow. These come from Asia, from Europe, from North America. Some of the, a lot of them are newly discovered. Some are just reclassified, that we didn't realize they were tyrannosaurs back in the day. This has also expanded our view of tyrannosaurs such that they are not just big bruisers like T-Rex. We've got big ones and little ones. We've got later ones and early ones. <laughs> so in the last couple of decades, we have started to get a much better sense of where tyrannosaurs got started, what their evolutionary history looks like. So let's take a tour through the evolutionary story of tyrannosaurs. I'm ready. Broadly speaking, when we say tyrannosaurs, so we, you, the word tyrannosaur, depending on what you want, could refer to the genus Tyrannosaurus, the subfamily Tyrannosaurinae, the family Tyrannosauridae, or the broader group Tyrannosauroids. Mm -hmm. We are using it in this episode to refer to Tyrannosauroids, because <laughs> that captures everybody. That is the whole extended family of the Tyrannosaurs. These are theropods. Theropod dinosaurs, the ones that stand on two legs, they've got hollow bones in a lot of places so that they have that bird-like breathing system. They are generally carnivorous, but not always. Tyrannosaurs are not closely related to a lot of the other famous theropod groups like Spinosaurs and Allosaurs and Carcharodontosaurs. Tyrannosaurs belong to a group called the Coelurosaurs. This is the group that altogether includes your uh, Dromaeosaurs, your Velociraptor and Deinonychus types, Troodon, Oviraptorosaurs, Ornithomimosaurs, birds, mm -hmm. as well as some weirdos like Therizinosaurs and Alvarezsaurs. 
and Tyrannosaurus. It's a, it's a cool group. It's It's got all the best theropods. Kind of undeniably. With apologies to Carcharodontosaurus and Spinosaurus. <laughs> it's got all the best. I'm so sorry. Spinosaurus episode 42. You already got your own episode. Coelurosaurus start off in the middle Jurassic and last until today. Because mm-hmm. we have, still have birds. <laughs> the classic image of a Tyrannosaur, the T-Rex image, is that huge animal with a giant head and powerful jaws and tiny arms with two fingers. T-Rex. But they did not start that way. Unsurprising. Most groups did not start the way that we know them. We, that Most of our episodes about dinosaurs have had this theme. Yes. It's like, yeah, here's what you know. All right, they weren't like that before. Yeah, let's go back to when they were weird. <laughs> the earliest known Tyrannosauroids are, a, and also the earliest branch of the Tyrannosaur family tree, are a group called the Proceratosauridae. Oh. Mm-hmm. The oldest ones that are known, the absolute oldest ones, are Proceratosaurus from the Middle Jurassic of England, originally named because it was thought to be an ancestor of Ceratosaurus, the yeah. one with the horn, which it is not. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I was like, I didn't think these were remotely in the same group. Nope. <laughs> but hey, name drop for Ceratosaurus, one of my favorites. <laughs> and Coleskus from Siberia, also Middle Jurassic. Both of these are about 167 million years old. Slightly younger than that, there's Guanlong from the late Jurassic of China, around 160 million years old, which is known... Uh, from a couple of nearly complete skeletons. The Proceratosaurs, at first glance, do not look like Tyrannosaurs that we are familiar with. First, they tended to be pretty small. These generally are 3 to 5 meters long, so 10 to 15-ish feet long. They have relatively long arms with three fingers that were good for grabbing stuff. They have thin, pointy snouts. So those long, sort of like if you think of a Velociraptor or Allosaurus, that sort of longer snout. Mm -hmm. And they tended to have head crests. They had crests on their noses. I'm showing Will a picture of Guanlong now. Oh, that's Guanlong. They have this sort of... It's got kind of a, a mohawk, but instead of being on the back of the head, it's on the snout. Yeah. Up, up until right above the eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Proceratosaurus has a crest like this. Th- these were crested early Tyrannosaur cousins. Uh, the head crests themselves I've seen described as r- partially hollow, relatively fragile. Uh, these are probably display structures. Yeah, most likely. Uh, or possibly noisemakers. I don't know what research has gone into that. But yeah, these these are not these are delicate structures <laughs> sticking off the face. Ceremonial. <laughs> but if you look closely among these dinosaurs, you can see some of the early hints of the features of tyrannosaurs. For example, their nasal bones are fused. This is a hallmark of tyrannosaurs. So you, uh, dear listeners, have nasal bones. So the bridge of your nose is two bones, your nasals. Many animals have much more prominent nasal bones. In Tyrannosaurs, the two different bones are fused together. Hmm. There is a trend across the Tyrannosaur family tree of strengthening parts of the skull. These early uh, Proceratosaurids also have heterodont teeth. Oh. Their teeth are differentiated a bit across the mouth. We talked about this in episode 88 about teeth. Specifically, the front teeth, the premaxillary teeth on the top, 
were shaped a bit like mammal incisors. That's cool. They're a little bit curved. So uh, if you cut them in half, the cross section looks a bit like a U. And they're smaller than the teeth farther back in the mouth. There's a little bit of specialization in the teeth, which is another thing we tend to see in tyrannosaurs. That's very... And that's also a cool thing to find in an early member of a group. Like, Yeah. Because we typically think about just reptile teeth being the same all around. So it's neat that even these early members had some specialized teeth. Yeah. Those early ones were also quite small, as I said, but there are later members that start to put on some poundage. Early Cretaceous China includes two members that I know haven't always been classified as Proceratosaurids, but recent studies I've seen classify them here. Sinotyrannus and Eutyrannus. Oh, yeah. From the early Cretaceous of China, both of which are estimated to have been eight or nine meters long. So now we're getting up in the 30, up, up towards 30 feet, possibly a ton or more in weight, but they still have the long arms relatively, the three fingers, generally more slender skulls, uh, relatively thin teeth overall, like most theropods have. Euteranus uh, is notable particularly because it also has a sign of a cranial crest on its face and is famously covered in feathers. Yeah! Euteranus is covered in uh, simple filamentous feathers. Uh, more on that later. <laughs> so we had our Proceratosaurids, but they weren't the only early Tyrannosauroids. There were others outside that group, sort of this mess of Tyrannosaurids that were spread across the world. Stoxosaurus is from the late Jurassic of North America. Eotyrannus from the early Cretaceous of England. Uh, early Cretaceous of China, we have Shengguanlong and Dailong, a small uh, dinosaur that is also noted for having feathers. Yee. Not quite as well preserved uh, as Eutyrannus's feathers, but the other feathered tyrannosaur is Dailong. More <laughs> on that later. Most of these early tyrannosauroids, like the early Proceratosaurs, were, I, I, the way I've seen them described is human-sized, <laughs> a few meters long. Uh, you know, they could walk in your front door. They yeah. weren't particularly large. <laughs> They'd fit on the couch. <laughs> and, notably, they tended to live in environments dominated by other theropods. Ah. Uh Allosaurs, uh, Carcharodontosaurs, other groups of theropods were the main predators in the environments where these early tyrannosaurs lived. Now, this group eventually gives rise to the famous tyrannosaurs we know later. Yeah, eventually, our T-Rex and friends emerge from within this sort of cluster of early tyrannosaurs, but it's not a straight line. We used to think it was. Uh, paleontologists used to think, okay, they started out small and not like T-Rex, and then they slowly got bigger and more and more like T-Rex, which is not quite uh, how it went. A lot of these early groups made it till much later. We have, quote, early Tyrannosauroids later on in the Mesozoic. North America during the Middle Cretaceous was home to a tiny Tyrannosaur named Moros, identified just in 2019, which is barely more than a meter long, Woo. and less than 100 kilograms. So a tiny little creature. Dryptosaurus, which we mentioned earlier, is late Cretaceous North America, also one of these Tyrannosauroids, and there's also Appalachiosaurus from the late Cretaceous of North America, specifically 
Eastern North America. Hey! We talked about this in episode 71, that North America in the Cretaceous was split in half by the Western Interior Seaway, with Laramidia on one side and Appalachia on the other. Appalachiosaurus is the only well-known theropod from Appalachia. (laughs) And the only Tyrannosaur known from there. And it's one of these late surviving early cluster of tyrannosauroids at least we have one and kind of neat that it's it's not your typical you know what you would expect it's one of the more earlier forms i think that's cool very cool within this cluster within this group of tyrannosauroids we start to see the gradual appearance of features we will recognize from later tyrannosaurs they don't all show up at once they kind of we we see them showing up here and there uh, across the group. For example, Shengguanlong has a rounder snout. Also, I've heard I've seen it described with a ventrally convex maxilla. Here's what that means. If it opens its mouth, the upper jaw has that sort of curve on the bo- the lower edge of it that you see in T-Rex. Oh. The 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 line of the upper jaw where the teeth are isn't straight. It has a little bow to it. That is one of the things that gives T-Rex its very distinctive profile. Yeah, that makes that that's one of those things where like, absolutely, that's characteristic of T-Rex. That's what T-Rex looks like. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never would have thought of that feature showing up. Yeah, I read that in. uh, So a lot of my information here came from Dave Hone's book, The Tyrannosaur Chronicles. (laughs) Uh, I will mention uh, some references. yeah, I read that in the book, and eventually convex maxilla, and I went, ventrally con- ventral is the underside, convex, no, concave, no, that means that it mm-hmm. curves outward, the maxilla, oh, that, <laughs> the shape of the mouth. The swoopy mouth. The swoopy mouth. <laughs> also, I think it was an oversight for him to not call it Chronicles of Tyrannosauria. Well, listen, <laughs> give him a call. He has a podcast now, too. Also, in Dryptosaurus, we see shorter arms like later tyrannosaurs, and a long specialized foot. Dryptosaurus has been noted as having a condition known as an arctometatarsal, which we will talk about later, characteristic of tyrannosaurs. And we see some of them getting to larger body sizes. Appalachiosaurus is six or seven meters long and possibly half a ton or more in weight, based on some estimates. And then we've also got somewhat closer to tyrannosaurs by some estimates, Bistahiverser at eight or nine meters and probably at least a ton, the size of those later Proceratosaurids we were talking about before. So we're seeing some of the features here and there, and eventually all the familiar features come together at the origin of a particular group called the Tyrannosauridae. Tyrannosaurs, more as we know them. Yeah. This group Uh, is largely known from the late Cretaceous. Like we talked about with Ceratopsians, uh, the horned dinosaurs in episode 87, and Ankylosaurs, the armored dinosaurs in episode 69, a lot of our very familiar famous dinosaurs showed up at the end of the Mesozoic. Wind dinosaurs got just so awesome. They sure did. Here are some of the familiar features of Tyrannosaurids. Tyrannosaurids are noted for having giant heads. (laughs) They have big skulls, uh, often with relatively short snouts. uh, uh, Instead of those long pointy snouts, shorter, rounder snouts, with a lot of powerfully reinforced bones. 
I mentioned the fused nasals. Also, uh, there are a lot of gaps in dinosaur skulls that often have struts running between the holes and, and within the inside. The struts tend to be thicker and more robust and more powerful. The heads of Tyrannosaurids are very powerfully built. So are their necks. <laughs> Which makes sense. There's a lot of area for the attachment of powerful neck muscles. So are their teeth. Tyrannosaurids generally have fewer teeth in their mouth than earlier uh, tyrannosaurs, and they tend to be thicker. Uh, I, you will often hear T-Rex's teeth described as banana-shaped. That's what I, I always hear, and yes, that yep. is the way you describe them. And I often, oftentimes you'll hear them described as having a D-shaped cross-section. So if you cut them in half, the cross-section of the tooth, uh, if you cut them, you know, cut the tip off, the cross-section of the tooth looks like a capital letter D with the flat pointing into the mouth, curving out. Often these teeth have very deep roots. Sometimes the root of the tooth, so again, back to episode 88, the root is the part inside the gum, the crown is the part that sticks out into the mouth. The root can sometimes be twice the length of the crown. Yeah. Deeply rooted. These are teeth that are thick and round, which makes them resistant to bending or breaking. They are deeply rooted, which means that they have a really strong anchor point. All of this specialization in the skull is for creating a strongly reinforced skull that is not for external forces. <laughs> they weren't headbutting like pachycephalosaurs. This is reinforcement to stop you from breaking your own face because of how strong your bite is. Yep. These are reinforcements for biting really hard. Yeah, this is this is a mouth to end all mouths. <laughs> More on that later. <laughs> also, uh, tyrannosaurids tend to have a lot of uh, what is called rugosity, bumpiness on the top of the snout. As all best animals do. Of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> and tyrannosaurs have little horns above their eyes. Little sort of tiny protrusions. These aren't, you know, triceratops horns. There's little uh, extended bumps. Little knobbly eyebrows. Little knobbly eyebrows. In life, all this bumpiness was probably covered in keratin to give it sort of a... It probably would have looked kind of mean. Yeah. Uh, just this sort of uh, bumpily, bumpy, uh, rubbly texture. Not unlike a crocodilian. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, and we see that in lots of modern but also fossil groups where they've just got these knobbly, bumply parts... And it's like, why do they have that? I don't know. Just it is. makes them look scary and awesome, but I don't know. <laughs> Tyrannosaurids also tend to have short arms. Yep. Though they tend, even the biggest later ones, to have evidence of major muscle groups still present. These weren't necessarily weak arms. They were just short arms. The arms tend to have two fingers. Tyrannosaurids lose a third finger, and they are down to two. Although I believe they sometimes still have a third metacarpal uh, inside the hand. They'll have yes. a little splint uh, of vestigial leftover of that third finger. Like like horses. Like horses. I was going to say, yeah, horses often will have little splints of their extra toes. Ah, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> uh, the fingers themselves tend to... So the claws at the end of the fingers in Tyrannosaurids tend to be less curved and less sharp than earlier groups. And you can look at the finger bones to look at the pits that are evidence of where ligaments and tendons attached. And the pits tend to be shallower in later Tyrannosaurids, which suggests that they didn't have quite as much strength and grip 
that they were using their hands less. Yeah, it, what, it makes sense that you have reduced grip when you have two fingers. Yeah, and you have a tiny little arm and a giant head. Like, unless you, <laughs> unless you put those two fingers into a crab claw shape, <laughs> I don't know how good a strong grip is going to be for you. Well, it's like a koala or a parrot yes. that sort of zygodactyl. They're climbing trees. <laughs> yes, yep. <laughs> and the tyrannosaurid hind legs tend to be very long compared to other theropods. Long with uh, relatively long and slender bones. The musculature is concentrated higher up on the leg. All of these are adaptations we see in things like horses, things like the ornithomimosaurs, things like ostriches. These are adaptations for moving. Yeah, I got to meet my first greyhound ever and hang out. And yep, that's that's what a greyhound yeah, shaped like. Shaped like a horse. <laughs> yeah. All the heavy muscles are up on the top. And then you just got this long, slender leg. <laughs> These running stilts. And in the foot, uh, they tend to have sort of a narrow, long foot. And they have the this condition I alluded to earlier, an arctometatarsus. So let me explain. In your foot, you have a bunch of bones. You have your ankle uh, and your heel towards the back, your toes toward the front, and between your ankle and your toes are long bones called metatarsals. You have five in each of your feet. T-Rex and its fellow tyrannosaurs have three major metatarsals in their foot. But unlike yours, where your metatarsals are generally all these long rods doing the same thing, tyrannosaurs, the middle metatarsal is sort of wedge-shaped and it pinches off towards the top. It gets pinched between the two on either side of it. And what this does is it restricts the movement of these bones. They can't slide past each other very much. This stabilizes the foot bones. It means that there's less slipping and sliding. It means that they are a more effective platform on which to move. The other dinosaur group where we see this adaptation is ornithomimosaurs. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. This is yet another adaptation for very efficient movement. This is what we see in horse legs, in that a horse can't move its leg in many directions other than the ones used for running. They are meant to go straight forward and straight back to be really good at running. Any other movement is good for tripping whilst running. (laughs) (laughs) Generally speaking, Tyrannosaurid anatomy is dominated by two major selective pressures, to be fast, efficient, agile locomotors and to j- bite so hard <laughs> and just to have the scariest skull and jaws in existence. <laughs> just, just, they're good at chasing you down and biting you. That yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Tyrannosauridae the family is generally Uh, There have been different opinions over time. Different data has pointed in different directions. Generally split into three subgroups. The Aleoramins, which are from Asia, which includes Aleoramus and Chenjosaurus, which are the slender tyrannosaurids. They tend to have relatively longer skulls and thinner teeth and be a bit more slender. The Albertosaurines. Hey! Albertosaurus and Gorgosaurus from North America. And the Tyrannosaurines, <laughs> of which there are many. Uh, a few of them are, according to recent phylogenies. Again, the tree moves around quite a bit. Teratophonius, Despletosaurus, Juchung Tyrannus, Tarbosaurus, and Tyrannosaurus. These have especially 
giant heads. <laughs> these are especially <laughs> beefy. Ty- these are the Tyrannosaurus of the Tyrannosaurids. <laughs> it's, you have these these thin, gracile, you know, graceful ones in Asia, and then the more moderate. Albertosaurs, and then the bobbleheads. Yeah. <laughs> Just every step. <laughs> like I said, generally, Tyrannosauridae is restricted to the last 20 million years or so of the Cretaceous. Many of them were enormous. Another hallmark of the Tyrannosaurids is they got real big. A lot of them reached in the 10 meter range, right? We're at about 35 feet long, multiple tons in weight, and the largest of them, including Tyrannosaurus, but also some estimates for Tarbosaurus and Juchung Tyrannus, were maybe getting up into the 12 to 13 meters, so over 40 feet, and several tons. Tonnage estimates generally for these range between 5 and 10 tons, so the size of a moderate to large modern elephant. Yep. These were predators the size of elephants. It's one of those things, I, I know how big T-Rex is. I, you know, I've known yeah. that for many, many years. You've been it's, around? It's still always ridiculous to talk about it. It's uh, it's too big. <laughs> it's it's always, every time it's like 35 meters, like, oh, right, yeah, that big of a number. Yeah. Tyrannosaurids generally range in size from, wow, that's really big, to why, why are you even doing yeah. that? <laughs> However... Uh, they might not have all been huge. So there have been, uh, there are a few noted that are a little bit under those estimates. Uh, very famously in 2014, there was a description of a new Tyrannosaur from the late Cretaceous of Alaska named Nanuxaurus. Oh, cool. Which was estimated in a original publication to be about half the size of most of these other Tyrannosaurs, maybe five or six meters long and much lighter uh, in size. In that original publication, the authors note that these dinosaurs were found at the northernmost edge of Cretaceous North America, which is a little weird, they note, because often we see dinosaurs get bigger Mm -hmm. as you go farther north. Like Troodon from up there is bigger than other Troodon. But they note that the region where they found it was possibly separated by mountains from the rest of the continent forming effectively an island. <laughs> so this might have been a island dwarf tyrannosaur. <laughs> or at least insular dwarf. It wasn't actually an island surrounded yeah. by water. I, I love the idea of them dealing, <laughs> them experiencing island life in a place like that, to where it's like, well, we're trapped here. We are surrounded by no land and then too much land. <laughs> <laughs> now... Uh, I did find a 2021 study that pointed out that that area does have larger bones that might be Nanuxaurus. So it's possible that original specimen was just a small one. Yeah. They might not be a dwarf Tyrannosaur. I love the implication that a dwarf Tyrannosaur is still a rhinoceros-sized animal. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been thinking that this whole time. I was like, (laughs) you know, a lot of these earlier ones weren't that big. You know, they were just like three to four meters. Right. You know, they were, they were only around 10 feet long. Because dinosaurs in general were big animals. Like yep. Even the early small dinosaurs were still a few meters long. Like yep. Dinosaurs only later, only later on and in a few places actually got small by like 
mammal standards mm-hmm. of small. The Tyrannosaurids are mainly known, as you may have noticed, from North America, specifically Laramidia, the western side, and Asia, although there is evidence of some sort of Tyrannosaurs uh, showing up uh, in Europe, even some hints in South America and Australia of either Tyrannosaurids or maybe earlier Tyrannosaurs. But mainly this is a northern group. Tyrannosaurids are mainly North America and Asia. There is evidence for recurring back and forth between these two continents. Uh, in fact, uh, so when we look at, there is a, there's a paper, I think this was a Brasati et al. paper, that has a great phylogeny that is the evolutionary tree of Tyrannosaurs with the continent they lived on put next to the name on the tree so you can see where the shifts happened when they moved to new places during their evolution. Oh, I like that a lot. And Tyrannosaurus from North America is often grouped next to Tarbosaurus and Jutung Tyrannus, which are from Asia, which indicates that either this group started in North America and then two of them moved over to Asia, or possibly more likely that this is an Asian group and one species, (laughs) Tyrannosaurus rex, moved over to North America. That T-Rex might have been an immigrant that came over. Or, to use the much more evocative phrase that I've seen used, an invasive species. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah, just the worst invasive species you can ask for. (laughs) Tyrannosaurids shared this part of the world in the late Cretaceous with hadrosaurs and ceratopsians, the horned dinosaurs, and ankylosaurs, the armored dinosaurs, whereas the southern continents and Europe were more occupied by abelisaurs, a different group of theropods, and the dominant herbivores uh, in those areas were sauropods. Right. The long-necked, specifically in the late Cretaceous, titanosaurs. (laughs) The coolest of the sauropods. The longest of the (laughs) long-necked dinosaurs. (laughs) And another interesting note, I mentioned that early tyrannosauroids often lived in environments alongside other theropod groups, mm-hmm. right? Where allosaurs and carcharodontosaurs and whatever else were alongside them, often the dominant predators. In the late Cretaceous, tyrannosaurids are typically the only large theropods in their environments. Uh, there are overlaps. So Tarbosaurus and Elioramus overlap in Mongolia. Despletosaurus, Albertosaurus, and Gorgosaurus are all in North America around the same time. But it's all tyrannosaurs yeah no other big theropods allowed and indeed in the latest cretaceous of north america the very end of the cretaceous it was t-rex yeah (laughs) t-rex was the large theropod as far as we know yeah we call that a hostile takeover (laughs) yeah yeah. well it came in and it king of the monsters all of north america systematically (laughs) and they all bowed down and then it it took over we have yet to find the the fossil remains of the giant ape that it then had to fight we haven't found him because it escaped into the hollow earth that's where it went hanging out down there (laughs) with his big axe So in the late Cretaceous, what we see is this, the world, the northern continents are taken over by a bunch of fast moving, giant headed uber predators. Just utterly terrifying on all levels. They're very cool. The evolutionary story of the Tyrannosaurs is 
very a really cool. There's a lot more detail uh, that could be gone into here, as always, especially because so much research has been done on this group. But after we get back from the break, we're going to shift gears and focus on what research has taught us about the lifestyles and behavior of tyrannosaurs. How does one be a tyrannosaur? How does a tyrannosaur do? We probably make that joke a lot on the podcast. I, yeah, no, I think so. Probably a few times. Roll the music. Let us begin our discussion of Tyrannosaur lifestyles by addressing the question that has probably been the most asked and most investigated question across the history of research into these animals about their lifestyles. How were you eating? (laughs) What were you doing with your giant head? (laughs) As we described, Tyrannosaurs have skulls just built for biting things very hard. Uh, We've mentioned this in a lot of news. This has come up that to have a strong bite, you don't just have to have the right sort of skull to deliver a strong bite. Your skull has to be able to handle that bite. Well, you have to think of the difference between like scissors, like, you know, just normal desktop scissors and bolt cutters. Yes. Like I can cut a sheet of paper with scissors real easy. If I try to cut anything thicker than that, it gets more and more difficult until eventually I'm going to break those scissors. Yes. Tyrannosaurs are the bolt cutters of dinosaurs. Yep. And indeed, there have been numerous bits of research estimating bite force in tyrannosaurs. Uh, Numbers that I have seen recently put bite force estimates for tyrannosaurs at around 34,000 newtons. Or seven and a half thousand pounds. And since those numbers don't mean anything, really, uh, that is roughly twice the bite force of saltwater crocodiles. Yep. And roughly seven times the bite force of hyenas, (laughs) of spotted hyenas, Uh, which, as we discussed in episode 109, that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, those are specialized bone crunchers. (laughs) And indeed, people have... are tyrannosaurs crushing bones? Like, why else would you have giant... Unless you're, you're not eating trees. <laughs> right, right. Why have that? Just chewing rocks. Oftentimes, the animals with the strongest bites are, especially robust skulls, are doing... are eating bone. Mm-hmm. Hyenas do that because bone is full of nutrition. You know, they are osteophagus. Eating bone, cracking bone to get at the marrow and stuff in there. Well, and... and- because bones are so tough so as to hold up bodies, mm-hmm. it's tough to get into, so it is a unique source of nutrition that not everyone can take advantage of. Yes. And there is evidence that tyrannosaurs were indeed using their teeth to bite bone. For one thing, the bite force estimates uh, are have been cited as certainly capable of shattering bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would do it, the scientists say. (laughs) As far as scientific understatements go, that's beautiful. Yeah, you'd manage it. Uh, You'd be about twice as good at it as a saltwater crocodile. (laughs) Also, we have found coprolites. Uh, Specifically, we've talked about, I think we talked about this in episode 30, Mm -hmm. uh, our coprolite episode, that there is one famous tyrannosaur coprolite, just the king of all turds, that is full of crushed up bone fragments, suggesting that it was eating and crushing bone, and lots of bite marks. 
Yes. We find bite marks on bones of other dinosaurs. In fact, here's a super fun statistic. Bite marks on dinosaur bone are, across the history of the Mesozoic, particularly rare. Like, dinosaur tooth marks on other dinosaur bone is quite rare throughout the Mesozoic, except <laughs> in environments where tyrannosaurs lived. Wow. Tyrannosaurids specifically, in dinosaur faunas where tyrannosaurids are part of the group, bite marks are significantly more common. I mean, we get bite marks yes. from dinosaurs. But yeah, generally, at least relatively speaking, they were not doing a ton of biting. Most of the bite marks we see come from environments where tyrannosaurs were. That's awesome. Which suggests that either uh, that they were targeting bone, or at the very least, they didn't care. Yeah, that they weren't <laughs> discerning. Yes, they, they were not uh, particularly concerned about it. Because that's what stood out to me is... The rarity outside of Tyrannosaurs suggests that, A, you're not eating bone, but mm. also that you may be a more targeted eater. Right, yeah. like cheetahs. Yeah, like cats very much are, where you're going for the soft stuff, but you're not gnawing on the bone. You're not going in so close that you are going to nick the bone. Right, and you don't want to break your teeth off. Exactly. This could very much just mean that, yeah, my skull is tough, my teeth are tough, I'm going to bite. Um, and, yeah, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> and I'm going to take away whatever's inside my mouth, and then I'm going to swallow it. There are numerous examples of herbivorous dinosaur bones, especially hadrosaurs, mm -hmm. the, the so-called duckbills, and some ceratopsians, the horned dinosaurs, with deep punctures, scrape marks, and sometimes missing chunks <laughs> attributed to tyrannosaurs. But... Uh, there is some evidence that they weren't just trash compactoring these bones. So I will draw our attention to one particular example that uh, I've seen. Dave Hone describes this in detail in his book, and I've also seen him describe it in a talk uh, that I watched on YouTube once. There is a specimen of Sorolophus, a hadrosaur from Mongolia, that has a bunch of bite marks on its humerus, so the upper arm bone, uh, likely from Tarbosaurus, the big tyrannosaur over there. That shows a particular pattern of bite marks with deep punctures on either end of the bone and then long scrapes along the crest where the muscles would attach. So oh. your humerus often has this big crest where uh, your arm muscles attach. Different types of tooth marks on different parts of the bone. The scraping is specifically... The premaxillary teeth, the teeth at the top, front of the mouth, and they are on both sides of the crest from the premaxillary teeth, the top teeth of the mouth. So this seems to suggest that this dinosaur might have done deep bites to break the bone away from whatever else was there and then scraped the meat off of the arm bone and even possibly flipped it over mm -hmm. to then scrape the meat off the other side. Yeah, dismembering it to then more, <laughs> like us holding up a drumstick. Yep. <laughs> That's so, cool. Potential evidence of manipulation of the food, that this wasn't just, all right, I'm going to bite and take everything that comes with it. They, oh, these powerful jaws were used in a particular manner. 
which I find that to be a very interesting perspective because uh, it's very easy just to think with a big mouth like that. You're just going to be like one of those crusher claw. Well, you're going you're gonna to be like the shark in that scene early in The Little Mermaid. Yeah. Just chum, 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 chewing chum, chum. through what's ever in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a strong jaw does not necessarily mean a clumsy or, you know, a, a, a right. reckless bite. I, I, I think of, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the trunk of an elephant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I can, this can be used to knock over trees. And flip cars. But I can also pick up a quarter. Yes. And, or an egg. The famous example, yeah. I pick up an egg with my trunk. And so, absolutely, I can use the, it's, it's like um, those wood carvers who use chainsaws. Yes. So I could cut the tree down, but then I'm also going to carve a bear out of the <laughs> trunk because I'm go- I'm good with this very powerful tool. Indeed, I've seen it described that this sort of pattern of scrapes might suggest uh, a feeding motion of pulling more like a hawk than twisting like a croc would do. Yep. You know, crocs are like shaking and twisting to tear the meat off. This might be, you could easily imagine a Tyrannosaur pinning something down with one of its giant feet and just pulling bits off of it the way that a bird does. Which, once again, with the shape of their teeth, as you described, that cross section would be much better at gripping and pulling than just the cones that Crocs are using. Yes. So you don't need necessarily to twist it off or just wrench things off. Now, of course, before a Tyrannosaur can eat its food, it has to get it. (laughs) It has to turn it into food. It has to find (laughs) the food. Uh, As far as hunting, what they were going after, as I mentioned, bite marks, but also gut contents indicate that they were feeding on hadrosaurs, on sometimes ceratopsians. There are a handful of cases that suggest uh, that that seem to be feeding traces on other Tyrannosaurs. Oh. That occasionally, which is not terribly surprising. We see that today with predators every now and then eating other big predators. Mm-hmm. But a lot of research has gone into the senses of Tyrannosaurs, specifically T-Rex. Yeah. A lot of this research has been done on T-Rex in particular. Studies of the shape of the brain case have found that the, the Tyrannosaurids, or the later ones, have large olfactory lobes which indicates that they had a very good sense of smell. The shape of the inner ear has been noted as being reflective of good uh, coordinated head and eye movement. Oh. Probably good at moving the head around quickly and being very coordinated. And then there's the eyes. This is one of my favorite things about Tyrannosaurus. So there have been questions of, all right, Tyrannosaur vision. Of course, Jurassic Park very famously uh, uh, instilled in the public consciousness, this idea of Tyrannosaurus having very poor vision, which, based on the evidence we have, is the opposite of what is true. Yeah, could not be more incorrect. If you look at the skull of a Tyrannosaurid specifically, Tyrannosaurs generally have uh, some degree of binocular vision. They can look straight ahead. Tyrannosaurids, if you ever look at a T-Rex skull, their sc- I've seen the, the head described as T-shaped, mm-hmm. with the long snout and then the back of the skull flares out to the sides, allowing the eyes to point much more forward. Yeah, down the barrel of the snout. Binocular vision means that the field of vision of your eyes overlaps. We have that. Yeah. You know, our eyes face forward. Primates uh, have binocular vision. Often predators, birds of prey, predatory mammals. This means if you look at something and you close one eye, you can still see the thing. And you close the other eye, you can still see the thing when you open 
you can see what's in front of you with both eyes. It gives you that range finding ability. Yeah, your brain can detect the difference between what your two eyes see. That's what depth perception comes from. Yeah, it's triangulating. It parallax. Right? This is how we use telescopes to judge the distance of distant objects in space, is we use two different telescopes and then judge the difference in the background mm-hmm. because we're seeing them at a slightly different angle. Tyrannosaurs have great binocular vision, especially the later ones, with overlap between the fields of vision, similar to modern birds of prey. Oh, wow. So I've seen it uh, related to hawks. So that, yeah, the the overlap, the the binocular field of vision, is similar to what we see in birds of prey today, with the added bonus that Tyrannosaurids, and especially Tyrannosaurus rex, has huge eyes (laughs) like when you look at the skull they don't look big yeah it's proportional to the animal because the the head is gigantic but their eyes are enormous Uh, i have seen uh, estimates for the eyeball size of t-rex at being around 100 millimeters in diameter 10 centimeters so about four inches (laughs) that's a big eye (laughs) that is an eye that is fist-sized or bigger. That's a fist-sized <laughs> eye. It's no giant squid, but that's a big eye. <laughs> and the cool thing about eyes is that the bigger they are, the more space there is for receptors. Yeah. And more receptors you have can potentially I- improve your visual clarity. That you can see more clearly just by virtue of having a big eye. Yeah, well, it's why our most powerful telescopes are big. Yes. Like for visual lens telescopes. Taking in light. Because just by the nature of the physics of light, bigger is better. <laughs> and on top of all that, T-Rex's head is enormous, mm-hmm. so the eyes are separated mm-hmm. by a distance. The same uh, reference that I saw that described the size of the eyes said that the eye distance between the eyes could be as much as 400 millimeters, 40 centimeters, so that's 16 inches, so that's over a foot oh. between the eyes. Which means that your binocular vision, your the difference between what your eyes are seeing is much greater. And they were really tall. Yep. So what T-Rex and its similar animals had going for it were giant eyes, possibly full of receptors, huge overlap in their field of vision, widely spaced eyes, and standing up very tall. I have seen estimates, and I'll link to this paper in the blog post, that T-Rex could have had visual clarity and distance vision several times better than ours. Oh, yeah. Than humans. That they could have seen several kilometers away, just because they're big and tall and have giant heads, and seen with a lot of visual clarity. T-Rex very likely had among the best vision of any land-dwelling animal ever. Which is... Another thing that I love to emphasize about dinosaurs from this age in general, late Cretaceous, but T-Rex was not just an extreme because it was a big predator, but it was, uh, it was specialized and it had some, it had super abilities. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Things like sight to which we might not have matched since it was walking around. Yeah. Which is really cool. It also plays the scene in my head of going on a late Cretaceous safari, like photo safari and seeing a T-Rex way off in the distance. Like, you know, they'll see lions and be like, Oh, 
we'll just observe them from here. We won't bother them. And you're observing the T-Rex <laughs> and you just see the T-Rex go whoop and look over at you. <laughs> and go, oh no. I like to imagine that the guide is like, and then you go, oh, he saw us. And the guide went, don't worry. He had already smelled us. Yes, yep, yep. <laughs> so Tyrannosaurids uh, likely had super senses. <laughs> Which, of course, would have been handy for tracking down prey. But, of course, you also have to get your prey. And, indeed, how Tyrannosaurs moved has been the subject of lots of uh, research. As I mentioned before, Tyrannosaurids, the later Tyrannosaurs, T-Rex and friends, have these very running adapted hind limbs. Long legs, narrow, long feet, muscles up at the top. Lots of research papers have demonstrated that these are very, it's not just about speed, efficient. These are good. These the legs were made for walking. <laughs> yep. A 2020 study that I'm pretty sure we talked about uh, on the podcast during the news. A lot of Tyrannosaur research has been in our news sections. <laughs> a 2020 study examined how the shape of Tyrannosaur legs would affect how they moved, specifically their speed and the cost of locomotion, the energy it takes to move your giant body. And what they found is that tyrannosaurs generally were better at moving than other theropods by virtue of the shape of their legs. Smaller tyrannosaurs in particular would have been fast. So smaller tyrannosaurs uh, would have been among the fastest carnivorous dinosaurs larger tyrannosaurs would not have been as fast just because they're you're huge yep. you are rhino to elephant sized what happens when you get big but that same foot and leg anatomy would make them very efficient that they could move over long distances or over long time periods using less energy than you would see in other theropods there has been other research that has found that tyrannosaurs that leg anatomy makes them especially agile. They're good at turning and twisting, especially the smaller ones. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Thomas Holtz uh, Jr. has referred to them as ballerinas of doom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to hear that band in concert. <laughs> and this all together gives us a very clear picture, I think, as we mentioned before, of what tyrannosaurs were doing when they were hunting prey. They were chasing after prey, and then using their giant heads. Earlier, Tyrannosaurs had those longer arms, yeah, so like we see in a lot of other theropods. Stronger fingers, three fingers, sharper claws, good for grabbing. Yeah, right? potentially grappling with their prey. Yeah, or even grabbing something small. Later, large Tyrannosaurids were clearly not doing that. Their arms did not reach past their faces. A Tyrannosaurus would not be able to grab prey unless it was already in its mouth. Like, these were using their faces to hunt. There has been a lot of discussion that I came across in my researching on tyrannosaurs about were they pursuit predators? Were they ambush predators? Were they uh, chasing, right? Were they doing the cheetah thing of lying in wait and then running really fast and grabbing it? Or were they doing more of the wolf thing of tracking over long distances? And odds are there was a lot of diversity in Tyrannosaurids and their strategies. Yeah. Right. Smaller ones may have been more suited to chasing prey, to ambushing prey. I have seen the point made, I think this might have been in Dave Hone's book, uh, where he points out that ambushing does not seem like a viable option 
for an animal that stands three or four meters tall. Yeah. And is elephant sized. Like, yeah, you're not, it's not that you couldn't ambush. It's where are you going to hide? You can't do the, the cat thing. Like a lion can get really low to the ground and then spring up and run. T-Rex might not have been able to do that. So maybe they were, right? There's my food. I'm going to walk after it for the next day. Yeah, well, it's it's that endurance hunting mm-hmm. that has been cited both for dogs, but also for human hunting styles. That it humans are one of the most efficient walkers alive today. Yes. We are we very are good at walking. Marathoners. And so we can outwalk most animals and we won't tire as quickly as they do and eventually they'll just exhaust themselves mm-hmm. and we will catch them and so yeah if you are just real good at walking you can keep your prey on the back foot at all times mm-hmm. and eventually one of them's gonna slip up yeah great binocular vision uh invasive into north america and took over everything <laughs> walking after your prey there's some parallels in evolutionary history, aren't there? <laughs> what I'm saying is we are as cool as Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> what I'm saying is I am as cool as Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> I'm going to walk after some KFC after this recording. <laughs> I'm just going just to chase down the employees. Give me chicken. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> now, speaking of how Tyrannosaurus were acquiring their food, we should take at least a brief moment to address the debate that doesn't exist. (laughs) For a long time, there has been discussion of this long-standing question of were Tyrannosaurs, specifically T-Rex, because it's the famous one, scavenging versus uh, hunting. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, this idea has been brought up for well over 100 years. Yes. Scientists have mentioned this quite a long time ago. In the recent few decades, this became a very popular topic to debate and discuss. We've met, brought this up before on the podcast. Scientifically, this has never really been a major debate. No. Because generally speaking, large carnivores are both. Yep. Like There are no large, there's nothing larger than a vulture that is a dedicated scavenger. People will often make references to hyenas and say, well, yeah, great sense of smell in tyrannosaurs good at crushing bone that's great for scavenging which is true but as we discussed in episode 109 about hyenas hyenas are also great hunters they're amazing predators so scientifically speaking we would expect that tyrannosaurids uh were probably doing some hunting some scavenging and indeed we have evidence of both (laughs) that case that i was mentioning before about the serolophus humerus that the Tyrannosaur was chomping on. What's notable about that specimen is that only the humerus is damaged. (laughs) And the way that the body was preserved seems to suggest that most of it was buried and an arm was sticking out of the dirt and a Tyrannosaur came along and chewed on it. Ah, thank you. Uh, Oh, yeah, don't mind if I do. On the other hand, we have numerous examples of healed bite wounds in especially North American hadrosaurs, tyrannosaur bite marks, often on the tail uh, <laughs> and by the hips, because that, that's the direction you're coming from. <laughs> because when you're running, that's yeah, what you're leaving bite, behind. Bite them on the butt. Healed. You got bit, at least one case I know of, where there is a tooth in the spine that was healed over and the bone fused around it, which suggests that a tyrannosaur chased after it, bit it, and it got away. Yep. Like, that is un 
undeniable evidence that you were bitten while alive. Yes. <laughs> uh, and for anyone out there that might be going, well, isn't that evidence that they're bad hunters? Not so. Uh, most carnivorous animal, even today, most hunts fail. Yeah, most hunts fail. Also, if they did kill them when they bit them, you wouldn't see any evidence. Well, we found that one. It was in a coprolite. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. how do you tell the difference between a scavenging kill and one they killed? Yep. That's the, that's the issue. Yeah, there's a bias in the record there. Exactly. Speaking of bite marks, another interesting note. A lot of Tyrannosaur, this has been noted as relatively common among Tyrannosaurids, the later ones, that they have healed bite marks on their snouts. Yes, 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 yes. That have been attributed to other Tyrannosaurs, which invokes this image of Tyrannosaurs just biting each other on the face, which some have suggested could be some form of social interaction, Mm -hmm. uh, some form of uh, ritualistic combat for mating purposes or territorial fights or something like that. That much the same way as like modern lizards will wrestle each other or, you know, uh, goats and other bovids will headbutt each other. Some tyrannosaurs might have been biting each other in the face. Well, it's, what comes to mind, unsurprisingly, is crocs. Like yep. crocs, when they have a dispute, they will posture and they will make noises. But a lot of times it, they just bite each other the way they bite anything else. And like you'll see crocs with a missing section of tail, and it's like, yep, someone got mad at them at some point. Yep. And took the back foot <laughs> of their tail off. Now, I have seen it pointed out. Uh, which I thought was interesting to read, that you know, you'd think that getting bit in the face is... You know, because we've talked about how, generally speaking, carnivores don't fight each other very much because your body is made of deadly weapons. Yes, because you are a lethal weapon. And, like, an actual serious fight between lions is going to kill probably both of you. So it's relatively rare to see... Uh, actual serious fights and a lot of animals like if you think of bison or or other animals like that are specifically using the parts of their body that aren't that are reinforced yes that are specialized for this thick skull you're not going to crack your skull open headbutting well i've seen it pointed out that for a tyrannosaur uh, if you're going to get bit somewhere your giant reinforced (laughs) skull with all that bumpiness on the snout might actually have been a pretty safe place to get bitten. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> the toughest part of your body is the part that you are using for biting. So yeah. it just makes sense. It's so, well, I guess so. <laughs> this, uh, of course, brings up the question of social relationships between tyrannosaurs. There has been a lot of discussion about the potential social grouping, gregariousness in tyrannosaurs. We mentioned some in the news not too long ago. There is one famous example uh, in Alberta in the Horseshoe Canyon formation of a mass burial of Albertosaurus of varying sizes, which is often pointed to as like, yeah, that is one of our best maybe indications of Tyrannosaurs living in groups. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me at all if there were Tyrannosaurs that lived in groups or at least congregated now and then. Yeah, once again... Like with most groups, this was a diverse, you know, taxa of dinosaurs. It wasn't just a few. So it would be weird if there wasn't one or two species that were doing something different. If most were solitary, lions are really the only (laughs) super social cat. 
Yeah, maybe Albertosaurus was the lion yeah. of Tyrannosaurs. So it it would be weird if there's not a social Tyrannosaur. A bit. But there it might not have been the common thing, potentially. Uh, Cats, episode 93. <laughs> and speaking of being social and stuff like that, Tyrannosaurs, another fun thought about Tyrannosaurs, they would have been very striking animals. There's been a ton of discussion, of course, in recent years, especially about Tyrannosaur integument. Mm-hmm. What did the outside of their body look like? And as we've discussed with lots of dinosaurs, probably pretty varied and interesting. I like the way that Dave Hone described it in his book that most Tyrannosaurs probably had a mosaic of scales, keratin, feathers, and maybe even naked skin. Yeah. That they, it would have been this... I like the word mosaic. Mm-hmm. It's a collage. A collage. Like I mentioned before, that rugosity, that bumpiness on the snout, and those little horns over the eyes of Tyrannosaurids were probably covered in keratin uh, scutes or horn coverings in life. Other parts of the body may have been reinforced with extra keratin scales. Proceratosaurids, as I mentioned, often have head crests which are clearly uh, at least positioned to be good for display. We also have a number of scale impressions from Tyrannosaurs. Uh, We don't have a ton, and there hasn't been a lot of uh, study on these, but there have been patches of scales found that give us a sense of the scalation patterns. And of course, feathers. Mm -hmm. Feathers are ancestral to Tyrannosaurs. The ancestors of Tyrannosaurs had feathers, uh, which we know because the earliest Coelurosaurs had feathers. Every group of coelurosaurs has feathery members. The evidence seems to suggest that feathers showed up before the origin of coelurosaurs and they all inherited it, tyrannosaurs included. We don't have a lot of specimens of tyrannosaurs with feathers. And this is probably partially because most tyrannosaurs are not fossilized in environments that are good for preserving feathers. So here in the in the US and Canada, for example, a lot of our tyrannosaurs are found in places with very coarse sediment that doesn't preserve the fine details that you'd expect from feathers. That you'd want for impressions. Yeah, things like that. There are two tyrannosaurs known with feathers, which I mentioned before. Dilong, that early tyrannosauroid, and Eutyrannus, the big, uh, potentially later proceratosaurid, both of which had simple down-like filaments. These weren't flight feathers. These were not quite ribbons, but more fuzzy. Yeah, more like the, the... kind of things you see on baby birds probably not like floofy (laughs) i I think that when people think of dinosaur feathers there's this tendency to go oh well they were like shaggy but if you think about most fuzzy and feathery animals they're smooth their profile is smooth uh uteranus in particular is well preserved as having a almost full body covering of feathers yeah it was very feathered some of its feathers filaments are up to 10 centimeters long wow so again four inches as long as a tyrannosaur's eye <laughs> that which means that this is this is a dinosaur i want to pet yeah you would be able to get your pet. hand in there and just ooh, it'd be so soft <laughs> so most tyrannosaurs probably had some degree of feathering like the other groups of coelurosaurs well, and I, I, when you were talking about the mosaic of features, I could see that that might sound very alien, like describing an alien creature. But if you think of like a vulture, oh yeah, they've got naked skin on the neck and face. That's just skin. Mm-hmm. They've got feathers, obviously, but then they've got scaly feet. Yeah, like 
it it's not necessarily as chimera-ish as it might sound when it's described. And we see that in some dinosaurs in the fossil record, that they have feathers in some places and not others. There was a paper that came out not too long ago describing patches of scales on a variety of tyrannosaurids, uh, including T-Rex, that seemed to suggest that at least a few small patches of the body, if these do reflect featherless body mm-hmm. parts and not places where feathers have just didn't get preserved. If these were bare patches of scales, then there may have been a handful of places where they did it there. They did have scales uh, and it certainly wasn't naked skin and maybe didn't have feathers, which would match what we see, like you said, with vultures and some other dinosaurs and the way your mosaic is arranged can have implications for how you're using it. So display, obviously, uh, feathers are great for display. Uh, your horns and, and bumpiness can be great for display. Also, those things are great for regulating your body temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the obvious one is, yeah, if you're fuzzy, you retain heat. It holds in the heat. That's why well, how mammals benefit from being fuzzy. Although it's also, I've seen it pointed out, feathers can also be used to radiate heat. Because they have a blood supply, you can pump blood into feathers to re- release heat, uh, so they can function as a cooling system. Well, you also have like the ostrich, who has very poofy air capturing feathers, much like the the loose fabric, you know, for desert dwelling people mm-hmm. to help aerate and capture cooler air yes. against the body. Another thing that ostriches do is that ostriches have strategic bare patches. Yes, like. And ostrich's thighs are bare of feathers. They're bare skin, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because that's probably where most of your body heat is building up in your thigh muscles. Uh, Warm climate penguins have bald spots as well. Uh, Black-footed penguins have bald eyebrows uh, for being able to blush and get rid of heat when they come out of the cold water. Yep. I have seen this described as strategic bear patches. (laughs) (laughs) Now that sounds like tactics with bears. (laughs) This is where we're going to put my strategic bear patch here to counter their assaults. This is like a carnivorin based game of risk. (laughs) I want this game now. It's on my Christmas list now. There is a quick note to be made here that the fact that tyrannosaurs had feathers, the fact that we're talking about how they would arrange those is a good indication of uh, controlling your body temperature. Yep. Uh, This is not news. Uh, Tyrannosaurs are part of the broader group of dinosaurs that are thought to have been warm-blooded, so to speak, or something similar to warm-blooded. But yeah, feathers don't... Feathers on a snake would not help. (laughs) No. I'll see people who are like, I want to knit a little blanket for my snake. It's like, that's cool. It's cute. It's cute. He's going to look really cute. Not going to help him. That's it. (laughs) Stop trapping any heat. (laughs) Blankets are not warm. So the question of what tyrannosaurs were doing when they were eating has occupied scientific discourse for a very long time. The question of what tyrannosaurs looked like and what they were feeding upon has occupied public discourse uh, very recently. But one topic that has been a major point of research and discussion on tyrannosaurs in recent decades has been their growth and development. Yes. Ontogeny. Ontogeny, episode 33, the study and also the process of developing from a baby to an adult. Tyrannosaurs, no matter how big and impressive they eventually got, started as babies. 
That's another thing we have in common. See? Okay. The parallels are stacking up. (laughs) We do not have, unless I missed something somewhere recent, any definitive examples of Tyrannosaur eggs. I believe there are suspected Tyrannosaur eggs, but we don't have a definite Tyrannosaur eggs. Which, man, what a shame. We do, as of very recently, have possible Tyrannosaur embryos. So this is research that came out last year in 2020 that, again, I think we talked about in the news. Sure did. That described a single jawbone from Montana that is about three centimeters long. It would fit in the eye of a Tyrannosaurus. (laughs) Possibly Dyspletosaurus. A claw and a tooth from Alberta that are possibly Albertosaurus that are thought to be either embryo or very early hatchling. Bitty bitty baby. Very, very tiny. But we that's about all we have to go on as in terms of Tyrannosaur babies. I have seen it suggested that the lack of eggs might indicate that they laid soft-shelled eggs, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which, again, we discussed uh, in a recent news, but we really don't have a lot of evidence. We can safely assume that Tyrannosaurs were making nests of lots of small eggs, which is what dinosaurs tended to do, possibly in very simple nests like crocodilians, possibly with some degree of parental care, because, again, their closest living relatives crocs and birds are both really good at making nests and taking care of babies good parents at least taking care of eggs and maybe early hatchlings but once we get into an actual born moving around animal we know a ton about the growth of tyrannosaurs specifically late cretaceous tyrannosaurids specifically tyrannosaurus albertosaurus gorgosaurus despletosaurus and tarbosaurus uh, are have been studied quite a bit because we have growth series for a lot of these species. We have examples of fossils at a variety of ages. Some studies, in fact, I I saw, and I think I will reference later, a 2020 study that I think was by Thomas Carr, possibly at all, that was able to characterize almost year by year changes in the growth of these animals. Once again, so ridiculous. So awesome. So cool. This has allowed us to put together growth curves. It's like, all right, what do they look like at age two, at age five, at age seven, at age 10? I have seen in a couple of places that have described that a two-year-old T-Rex was about 30 kilograms, about 100 pounds. Generally speaking, these tyrannosaurs, the growth curves we've seen for them show that they start out small and stay that way for a while and then have a growth spurt and then level off. Sort of an S shape mm-hmm. that it's gradual, then fast, and then gradual again. Which is how we grow. Yes. Yeah, we start it. We're small for a bit. Then we spring up. Then we level off. And indeed, the growth spurt for tyrannosaurs seems to happen in their teens. <laughs> Tyrannosaurids seem to reach maturity, right? anatomical maturity, in their late teens to 20. Once again, I love that image just because the picturing... You know, it's like when a family gets a puppy when they have a baby so that they can grow up Mm -hmm. with the dog. I've got a picture of that happening where you're going to grow up alongside a T-Rex and just have very disproportionate puberties. This is what we need (laughs) for a new Dinotopia series. Yeah, see? A orphaned (laughs) child and a lone egg. (laughs) And then... They grow up together. An emotional journey that will have us crying by the end. That's what I want. Writers... That you can consider this free. This is for free. This is for free. Put us no in the No charge. 
Please have it on my desk <laughs> by next year. So, do you have a movie for me? <laughs> <laughs> now, as you can imagine, starting small for a while and then having a growth spurt is a big deal when you your final form is tons mm-hmm. in weight. Tyrannosaurids grew very quickly. Albertosaurus, Gorgosaurus, etc. at adult sizes are often estimated at, you know, a couple of tons, which they're reaching in those 20 years. Like that growth spurt goes from a little animal, the dinosaurs laid small eggs, so they would have come out at best the size of like, I don't know, a kitten or something, (laughs) to a rhinoceros-sized animal. But what's really striking is that T-Rex which hit full adult size at like several tons, you know, five, six, seven, eight tons, reaches adulthood in the same time span. Mm-hmm. It hits adulthood at the same time that Albertosaurus does, even though it is several times larger. T-Rex grows so preposterously fast. There was a study not too long ago that estimated how fast would that have been. And their estimates suggested that at most growing teenage T-Rex might have grown 700 kilograms or three quarters of a ton per year (laughs) at a maximum of two kilograms or five pounds a day. Yep. Man. Remember how much you ate when you were going through your growth spurt? That's what I was going to say to all those parents who have raised teenagers <laughs> successfully through puberty and all the horror stories everyone always shares about just how ravenous <laughs> having teenagers in the house is. It's It has to be like after Tyrannosaur breeding season and, yep. and the eggs hatch, well, the herds know. have to be like, wait, how many years was it? that those eggs hatch everybody hide (laughs) we gotta go tyrannosaur parents are like i thought teething was bad how they achieved this uh we don't have a lot of details one answer is almost certainly high metabolism you have to have had very high metabolism similar to birds similar to mammals in order to achieve this possibly parental care can help you uh, attain a high growth rate Tyrannosaurs reach maturity uh, around 20 by 20, but notably, we rarely have them older than that. It seems that Tyrannosaurs did not live beyond maturity very commonly. Okay. This is a trend we see in the record. The oldest Tyrannosaur that's often cited is Sue, the famous one currently at the Field Museum, who's estimated at 28, but that's, that's unusually old. It seems that it's weird for us to think about because mammals reach adulthood and then that's most of their life. Mm -hmm. There is the implication that for tyrannosaurs and indeed a lot of dinosaurs, most of your life was spent in that growing adolescent stage. And then you reach full size and you don't make it much past that. Yeah. You have a few more years left or something. Tyrannosaurs also seem to have reached sexual maturity before reaching somatic maturity yeah, yeah. full adult size that they could breed before they actually made it to full size which yeah it's an interesting concept that you could be a sexually mature animal while still growing significantly which while that sounds weird we do that yes we do humans do that we, we, we as a species yeah we don't condone it very yeah, often our laws <laughs> don't sync up with that but physiologically yeah we can 
mate and have babies often before we are fully grown. Yeah, in the midst of puberty mm-hmm. is when that, that often becomes an option for us. So yeah, it's an it's it makes me think of those insects where like the well-known thing, you know, the dragonfly is what we yes. all know, but really the larva is where they spend much of their life is as a very different animal underwater or doing underground. Yeah. You know, a lot of insects, the vast majority of their life is spent in a form that we don't see often and don't know well because they don't have wings. It It's similar with T-Rex. We all think of T-Rex as the 40 foot long, mm-hmm. 14 foot tall monster, but that's evidently not what most of its life was. Yeah. And is not what you would have commonly come across if you were out taking population studies of T-Rex while they were alive, you would have found them in that growth curve. Yeah, juveniles might have been much more common. So the, the famous image of them would, is not an accurate image of the population. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Now, not only do growing tyrannosaurs go through dramatic changes in size, their whole bodies change a bunch. Young tyrannosaurs are very different from older tyrannosaurs. This is true for T-Rex and Tarbosaurus and a lot of the ones we've discussed. When they're younger, in their growing stages, their skulls tend to be more slender, their teeth tend to be more blade-like than the thicker ones they'll get later. They tend to have more teeth. Oh. So they'll get fewer teeth as they get older and the teeth become larger and thicker. The skulls become larger and more robust. The horns grow in. They get bigger. (laughs) They get their little horns. Tyrannosaur torsos, as they grow, relatively become larger, longer, and heavier. Their legs become relatively shorter. They don't maintain the same proportion uh, of their body as they grow. This has been linked to a change in ability. There have been tons of recent studies examining, all right, if juvenile tyrannosaurs were so different from the older ones, How did that affect the way that they behaved? A 2019 study, we probably talked about every one of these. Yes, we did. (laughs) In the news. A 2019 study found that young were more agile, could turn better, those ballerinas of doom that Tom Holtz talks about. A 2020 study found that, that this is the one I mentioned before, that the longer legs were good for efficient walking in larger tyrannosaurs, but faster running in smaller ones. The young would have been faster than the adults. A 2021 study found that juvenile tyrannosaurs had a weaker bite. They didn't have that giant bite force that we recognize later on. And that 2020 study by Thomas Carr found, uh, surprisingly, looked at uh, a detailed growth rate and found that this wasn't necessarily as gradual a transition as we might imagine. Mm. That study pointed out that at least the skull in particular seems to change relatively quickly later in life. That th- that whole change to the skull from slender, uh, more blade-like teeth to the big, you know, monstrously powerful and robust adult skull might happen within just a few years in their mid-teens. A rapid transition from one state to the other. And I'm so glad you brought up insects Because in that paper, they point out this sort of wholesale change, rapid shift, might be considered secondary metamorphosis 
<laughs> not of the kind we see in insects, but what they relate it to is salmon. Yes. That when salmon reach sexual maturity, they undergo, male, I think males especially, undergo very quickly dramatic changes to their body. Yeah, they start looking like what you don't think a salmon looks like. <laughs> because <laughs> They we become always, monsterified. Yeah, they get sharp hooked jaws with teeth that protrude out and a big muscular hump on their back. They Yeah, they turn into a combat salmon. Yeah, the implication here, and now this is, I'm referencing a single study. But there are dramatic changes from juvenile to adult, and yet maybe some of them happened very quickly, possibly linked to sexual maturity, right? The horns and the big skulls. It may be that late teens is when you become a monster. <laughs> You're right. a man now. Yet another parallel. <laughs> You start eating everything, you smell a bunch. Now, as you can imagine, and indeed, if you have listened to this podcast much before, or indeed, if you follow Dinosaur News even a little bit, these dramatic changes from young to adult can be confusing. Mm -hmm. And there have been a number of famous cases of this being confusing. Tarbosaurus, the big tyrannosaurid from Mongolia, at one point there were... A, a number of other species of tyrannosaurids named living alongside Tarbosaurus. Smaller ones that later were uh, discovered to be growth series. Mm -hmm. That those weren't different smaller species of tyrannosaur. Those were just young Tarbosaurus and became our growth series. The same thing has happened with Tyrannosaurus, although there's s still some degree of debate about this. Just a bit. Nanotyrannus is the name originally given to a skull of a tyrannosaur from here in North America, the latest Cretaceous, found, I think, in the 40s, named in the 80s, that was identified as a small tyrannosaur that lived alongside T-Rex. Same environment, same time. Uh, also, uh, some have suggested that this identification be given to a skeleton named Jane, which has been identified as a 12-year-old uh, tyrannosaur, this uh, supposed nanotyrannus would be about half the size of T-Rex, but it seems there seems to be a growing consensus that nanotyrannus looks like a different species from T-Rex for all the same reasons that those smaller tarbosaurs looked like a different species for all the same reasons that juveniles look different from adults. Yes. And that nanotyrannus is probably just a juvenile T-Rex. This is, of course, we talked about this before, not unique to Tyrannosaurs. Like, this has happened with Ceratopsians, and this has happened with other dinosaurs, because dinosaurs change so much when they get go from really little to really big. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, just think about all the animals today that are born without crazy horns and yeah. then have crazy horns. If we found fossils of them, how easy would it be to tell a baby goat from an adult goat and go, yeah, those are obviously the same thing? Yeah. And these are experiencing some really significant changes, not just in the skull, but the whole body. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, has led to another facet of discussion, which we have talked about a bunch in the news not uh, in the recent times. Were young tyrannosaurs living differently? Yeah. Having very different bodies and skulls would suggest, you know, be being able to run faster, but bite not as hard and being more agile. That seems to indicate that you were doing something different. I often see them related to... We, we've related them to uh, crocodilians. Yep. Because gators do this. As gators grow up, they're changing what they're eating and where they're hunting. 
Another comparison that I've seen, uh, that I, I've seen some researchers favor is to Komodo dragons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Young monitors, young Komodo dragons often spend time up in trees. They're really good at climbing and they hunt differently. The adults spend more time on the ground because they're too big to climb and they eat different foods. And often the adults and the young live in different places because a young Komodo dragon is on the menu for an older Komodo dragon. Yes. Much like crocodilians. So there are some animals today where there's precedent that, yeah, yeah, in your younger years, you live a very different lifestyle from your parents. Mm-hmm. And indeed, and we've talked about this, there was a study this year, 2021, uh, at least there was one study by Tom Holtz, and there was another study uh, earlier than that that I want to say Catlin Schroeder was part of uh, that found similar results. The Holtz study specifically looked at communities of dinosaurs with different types of predators in them and found that most cases in not only dinosaur communities but modern communities you have predators of all sizes Mm -hmm. right africa you have your lions and your leopards and your cheetahs and your wild dogs and all the way down dinosaurs often have large predators mid-sized small except in faunas where there are large tyrannosaurs where you don't seem to have middle-sized theropod species you don't seem to have mid-sized carnivores and the suggestion seems to be that the reason you don't have medium-sized carnivores is because your tyrannosaurs were both your large and medium-sized carnivores yeah you don't have mid-sized predators because you have juvenile tyrannosaurs yes (laughs) That And this is how uh, Tom described, I think this was on our uh, Paleo Talks episode uh, recently, I think this is where I pulled this quote from, that they effectively represent different species ecologically. Yes. You are acting like a different species because you're hunting differently, you're eating different prey. And so you're taking up those niches that would otherwise be occupied by middle-sized carnivores. Oh, uh, it makes me think of frogs, to where it's like, you're a grazer. As a baby, <laughs> as a tadpole, you're grazing on algae and plant material, and then you become a predator. That's, as far as the other residents of the pond are concerned, two different creatures that they have to put up with yes. and share their habitat with. They have the small wriggly ones that eat plants and are fine and tasty, and then the <laughs> giant hopping mouths that are terrifying. Yep. And you've got your 13-year-old T-Rex hunting smaller, faster, mobile things, and your 19-year-old T-Rex that is taking down the biggest things around, plodding and just walking after him. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to get you. (laughs) So it has been suggested that younger Tyrannosaurs may have been hunting uh, smaller prey, faster, more agile prey. Indeed, it has the point has been made by a number of researchers that juvenile Tyrannosaurids have body shapes quite similar to earlier tyrannosaurs. Uh, yeah. That more slender bodies, more slender skulls, more blade-like teeth, more teeth. Like The trends we see in the adults through evolutionary time, we also see in the growing up of the latest, biggest tyrannosaurs. So baby, ty- well, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. teenage tyrannosaurus, <laughs> teenage tarvosaurus, might have been hunting in living lives more like Euteranus or Appalachiosaurus. Very, very... Well, and it's it makes sense uh, for big animals like that. 
because this also is niche partitioning. Yes, you this can, makes you're not competing with your mom. Exactly. I'm, we're not both going for the big hadrosaur. I'm going for this small scurrying, you know, uh, animal whilst you're handling the heavyweights. Which is especially handy because as we've discussed, it sounds like the adults were far outnumbered. Yes. <laughs> by the youngins. Is <laughs> these young ones taking everything over. Yeah. Right, boomers? <laughs> uh, see, another parallel. There we go. <laughs> Young tyrannosaurs with their agile hunting and their TikToks and, and their, their Twitters. <laughs> another thing that stands out to me about the idea of big T-Rexes being good for a different lifestyles, a lot of the things we mentioned, like good eyesight, good sense of smell, efficient walkers, I've seen that and I don't know how much research or how often this is stated by T-Rex researchers, uh, but that those things correlate with animals that can maintain big territories and oh, yeah. are good at trolling around a oh, large expanse. If a tire, I think the number that I saw in that paper about vision was uh, estimate again, estimated uh, visual being able to see clearly like distinguish things in the distance up to like 13 kilometers away or something just a T-Rex standing up and going, all right, everything's fine within these five miles. <laughs> what am I hungry for today? Just like Superman. Just yes. what, ex what is around today? <laughs> and so, yeah, and it would make sense if they're not common that they could be moving vast distances mm. to feed themselves and look for food or to hunt, you know, herds and stuff. That these are not just things that might be good for hunting directly but also just <laughs> moving across long distances <laughs> and going where you want to go because you can smell or see it yeah makes sense <laughs> now we would be remiss uh both in the sense of doing justice to the topic but also in appeasing some of the requests we got to end this discussion of tyrannosaurs without spending a little more time on well the elephant in the room or more aptly the elephant-sized predator in the room Let's talk just a little bit about T-Rex. Obviously, we have talked about T-Rex the entire episode. Yep. Most of what we know still today, most of what we know about Tyrannosaurids and Tyrannosaurs in general comes from studies on Tyrannosaurus rex. T-Rex is, of course, the most popular dinosaur ever. Yep. I don't think there's much dispute. It is one of the most famous animals it, possibly the most famous fossil organism ever, not just popular with the public, but popular as a research subject. And indeed, there's a lot of T-Rex to go around. Yes. T-Rex fossils have been found in Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming, Alberta, Saskatchewan. They are all from the latest Cretaceous, between 68 and 66 million years old. T-Rex is one of the very last of the Tyrannosaurs. A note that I didn't make when we were going through the evolutionary history of tyrannosaurs is that at the end of the Cretaceous, they go the way of the, the way that like a dozen of our other episode topics have gone at the end of the Cretaceous. <laughs> they disappear. They do not make it into the Paleocene. T-Rex is often the only large theropod in most of its environments. And there are more than 30 well-preserved specimens of T-Rex known. Many of them have names. <laughs> Sue and Stan and Bucky and Thomas and Victoria. There's the Wankel Rex. There's the Tuft Love Rex. A lot of them have been used for many different studies. A lot of them, like I said, are 
not only well-preserved, but many of them are very complete skeletons. It has often been noted that more research has been done on T-Rex than any other dinosaur. Yep. I have seen it described as a quote, and again, I don't remember where I actually pulled this quote from. This might have been from Dave Hone's book. Quote, an immense and disproportionate amount of research. <laughs> Tons of research has gone on on this dinosaur. In fact, this episode will be outdated next year. Oh yeah, almost certainly. Just because we keep finding more out about this this creature. Because we're obsessed. <laughs> we are, well, and <laughs> indeed, not only scientifically is T-Rex super popular, publicly. Oh, the first time that T-Rex ever appeared in movies, to my knowledge, was in 1918's The Ghost of Slumber Mountain. And since then, it has appeared in basically every TV show, movie, book, or video game that has dinosaurs in it. Pretty much. Like, there's, there's all, T-Rex is also the archetypal dinosaur for, like, Superman fights a dinosaur in this episode. The dinosaur is T-Rex. Yes. Th that's just, we, we want to turn a dinosaur into a giant kaiju monster that destroys tokyo t-rex yep that is your basis for this time it's just everywhere one could probably make a reasonable argument that jurassic park would not have been the hit that it was without the inclusion of t-rex yeah i mean without that t-rex scene <laughs> yeah you're missing a lot of what makes it super famous I remember in the behind the scenes stuff for Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg saying that originally the T-Rex wasn't supposed to show up at the end. And then he realized later on in the, the creation of the movie, oh, we got to bring this thing back. The audience will be mad at me if we don't bring this thing back. No one will be happy that we didn't see it again. Yeah. Even the fossils get a lot of public attention. The, the most striking case is Sue. Mm -hmm. Sue is a largely complete one of the most complete specimens in the world of t-rex particularly large although no longer considered the largest because <gasps> scotty yep is considered largest even though scotty is younger oh right uh, I I, that's that. a note i didn't make before that age and size do not directly correlate in tyrannosaur specimens sue was discovered in south dakota in 1990 and thus followed an ownership dispute that lasted years and went into the courts and some people went to jail. Uh, I don't think related to Sue at the time. I think it was related to other stuff. There, It was this massive legal phenomenon. And in the end, the landowner ended up getting the rights to the skeleton and then decided to sell Sue. The skeleton was auctioned off for a final bid of $8.4 million. Yep. Which ended up going to the Field Museum, thanks to donation support from... A number of other sources, including McDonald's and Disney, <laughs> chipped in to be like, yes, send this skeleton. It, be it belongs in a museum. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> so there's just all this attention heaped onto this, this animal. And I think that it's important to sort of take a moment uh, in this episode is a great opportunity to do it and discuss why yeah. is this. And... What are the, what's the balance there? Because people complain about it. It's <laughs> yeah. a thing that is a complaint, not just in the uh, sort of public discourse, but in scientific discourse. Now, I had the opportunity to ask a question uh, along these lines to Dr. Thomas Holtz, a famous Tyrannosaur researcher recently, about sort of 
where does that popularity fit into the density of research? And his answer to me was, he said that it kind of is a cycle that early on we found a, a bunch of really good skeletons, which made this a source of research attention and a source of public attention, which then brought more research to it, which then meant that we were learning more about it, which then meant that we wanted to find more, which then cycles and cycles and yeah, cycles. It, it started off on the right foot. <laughs> As far as becoming popular goes. Part of what makes Tyrannosaurus so popular is that it's in the same boat as Triceratops and, quote, Brontosaurus. It was one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. It was early and it was huge. Yeah. It's one of the founding members of the Dinosaur Justice Justice League. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's Batman. (laughs) So it just has the notoriety for we've been talking about it for a very long time. Yeah. And we keep researching T-Rex and its relatives, which means we keep learning new stuff about it, which means that it's also really cool. <laughs> like, all the stuff we've been talking about in this episode is like, yes, T-Rex is over-discussed, uh, and it is the one that people always go to. And You ask a kid, you a room full of kids what their favorite dinosaur is, and half of them are liable to say T-Rex. I, I had an experience with a group of kids <laughs> where I went through individually to their insistence, because when I accidentally skipped one, they were irate and made sure I knew. <laughs> and as I went through every single child, they all said their favorite dinosaur was T-Rex. Even the one who corrected me and said, hey, you skipped me. I go, oh, I'm sorry, what was your favorite dinosaur? They went... Let me think T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> so it is just, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But it's so cool. It really is. It really is a very cool animal. Well, one of the things that always stands out to me is like T-Rex is just, it, it is absolutely oversaturated both in scientific and public media. Yeah. Like it's it's just talked about so often and that definitely can be annoying. Mm-hmm. It's also still very regularly portrayed as like the one big predatory dinosaur. Right. Even though if you ask any kid, they will start telling you about Giganotosaurus and Concardontosaurus. But as you mentioned, it's not even the only one big Tyrannosaur. Yeah. But yet it stands above all the rest in fame. And whilst all of that is potentially misleading mm-hmm. and not a fair shake as far as discussion goes. It is a really cool animal. It's, it's very cool. And it's got a cool history to it. Like it's historical. It's nostalgic. It's very impressive. It's, it, so it it is hard not to be endeared to T-Rex, even if you know that it's being treated biasedly. Yeah. Now, some of the complaints that people will levy at, okay, yes, this repetition of focus on this animal. Uh, One that is a fair point, I think, is that it distracts from other things. Absolutely. Like, yeah, if you pull someone off the street, like, it'd be cool if people could name more dinosaurs. Then you just keep showing the same ones. But also in research, I have seen researchers say, you know, I really wish people would study other dinosaurs more. You know, the say uh, T-Rex is to dinosaurs what dinosaurs are to all other fossil animals. It's like, yeah, there you I, go. I wish you wouldn't it, like all this attention goes to dinosaurs. All this attention goes to T-Rex where there are other things, other organisms that it would be really nice for us to be able uh, to learn more about, to research more about. 
if they weren't being overshadowed by all this focus being put on T-Rex, the favored child. Exactly. Well, it makes me think of how I've often heard uh, historians complain, you know, or, or my friends who are just very interested in history complain about the way history is taught in many public schools, at least here in the U.S., where it is, there was this war, and then some history happened, and then there was this war, right. and then some history <laughs> happened, and then there was this war, and then some... It's it's taught by, punctuated by wars, mm-hmm. and not as history in general, that it is taught with a very skewed view. And the way we talk about dinosaurs can skew our understanding scientifically, but also in the public. Yes. Very easily in the public. Making, you know, people are often surprised to hear there are other big predators. Even though T-Rex existed for two million years-ish at the very end of the Cretaceous. That's one thing that I've found very common. And I remember being surprised by when I was younger and learned that T-Rex was just there at the very, very end. It was like, because we show it so often and we feature it so often, it feels like t-rex should be ubiquitous throughout the mesozoic or at least through the cretaceous you know that it should be a defining a a biomarker of this age and it's so not and that even if the scientists researching it aren't being skewed by that that can that really it's the same issue that happens with showing all dinosaurs living here's stegosaurus here's Tyrannosaurus, here's all these animals just living together in one big clumped Mm -hmm. assemblage that gives the wrong perception of time for these ages because you're you're featuring the popular ones, not the accurate ones all the time. The other thing that can happen, uh, and I've seen this uh, pointed out by others, when you have an animal that is that popular is that you get the situations we were discussing before about how you can get uh, sort of this unusual attention put on it you end up with debates sort of public facing debates right the whole scavenger predator thing which shows up in the news like news articles love to reference this yep they love to go back to the oh scavenger predator stuff uh the feathers debate mm-hmm. right uh the way that tom holtz put it is tyrannosaurus attracts a lot of odd ideas well it- <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, it also attracts a lot of heated feelings and emotions. <laughs> it makes me think of the Star Wars franchise. To where yeah. It's like, you know, oh, these movies in this franchise weren't very good. Okay, yeah, that happens in all movie franchises. Every single movie franchise has not so good or slightly disappointing movies compared to the really good ones. Yeah, but this is Star Wars and they <laughs> ruined it. It's, this, it's yeah. How yeah. dare you speak yeah. ill of my yes. Tyrannosaurus? You can get that when you have that level of public attention. Now, all that said, the heavy focus on Tyrannosaurus is not exclusively a negative thing. No. The best demonstration, I think, scientifically of that is that Tyrannosaurus is, in a very fascinating way, like a fossil model organism. Yep. More research has been done on the lifestyle, behavior, growth rate... Uh, There has been research on population dynamics, on biomechanics, how it moved, than any other dinosaur species, any other fossil species. And it sets the foundation for us learning how to do those things. 
it is the fossil. It, it is where we do all of our beta testing of yeah. our new, you know, methods and stuff. A lot has been learned from these uh, these studies that can then later be applied to other groups. Well, and it, it can also be a really good way to draw funding and attention to yeah. science. And that, on the public-facing side, in much the same way that dinosaurs are often little kids' first introduction to science, T-Rex is often our first introduction to dinosaurs. Well, it, it makes me think of two things. Mythbusters, uh, when in an interview Adam Savage was describing that their initial intention with Mythbusters was to use explosions to trick people into learning about science. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was their whole goal, was we're going to do big crazy things and sneak in facts when you're in between those crazy things. Yep. And it also makes me think of robotics things. Whenever a new robot comes out, so often, especially if it's a at all smallish robot, they'll be like, and so one of the purposes for this could be rescue and search, you know, search and rescue for people in mm-hmm. a, a collapsed building or something because you need a reason for it to be funded. And it's not saying that's made up. Yeah. But you need a reason. And that is a very good reason to make autonomous things. If we're studying T-Rex, people are going to stand up and listen a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now we can do science. Yes, we may be doing too much research, quote unquote, you know, too much research on T-Rex. But it's still research. It's still science. It's still usually good science. Yeah. So it's still teaching us about dinosaurs, even if it's focused very heavily and there might be some skewing. That research can then be used for other purposes, other dinosaurs. So it's more research is never bad. Right. (laughs) So T-Rex is still getting a lot done. So it's this odd double-edged situation where like, Yes, T-Rex, the focus on T-Rex absolutely distracts from other things. Yes. It's absolutely misleading. It absolutely leads to strange hyper-focuses and, and memes. Uh, not just memes like funny pictures on the internet, but like in journalism or in online, you know, in movies and TV of tropes that show up. But on the other hand, it fuels a ton of really cool research and a ton of really interesting uh, attention is brought to dinosaurs through this, the, the, the so-called king of the dinosaurs. And I think that on top of the science and on top of the history, the cultural phenomenon of T-Rex makes it that much more interesting. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> T-Rex is in such a, a unique position because it was one of the early discoveries. Mm-hmm. It was a good discovery. Like yeah, well-preserved. We find it just a bone. It was also one of the first dinosaurs ever put on public display in museums. It's got a cool name. It, you know, I was, I, I was, <laughs> when I was going through like some of the other names that were ended up being synonymized, like we had Dynamosaurus, Imperiosus, which that one's actually pretty good. Oh yes. Yes. That one's neat. Uh, Manospondylus gigas. That I, I do not think the dinosaur would be nearly as popular if its name was Manospondylus gigas. That sounds like something that like, you need to talk to your doctor before you ask for a prescription for it. T-Rex, so Tyrannosaurus rex, genus and species names are very commonly scientifically abbreviated. First initial of the genus, period, space, lowercase, species name. Yes. H. sapiens, homo sapiens, canis lupus, C. lupus, uh, uh, O. megalodon. T. 
T-Rex is just a standard scientific abbreviation of the name Tyrannosaurus Rex that has the benefit of also sounding like the final boss yep. in a video game or like the cool robot character from a, a cartoon. Like, T-Rex is an awesome name. Well, it's, it's also just from a marketability standpoint, it's very pronounceable. It is. Like, this isn't like we're not dealing with Parasaurolophus or one of the other Carcharodontosaurus. Yep. Like, oh, Pistacillacaudia. Yeah, like, it is not a name that you look at and go, <laughs> my kid could say it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Tyranno. It's, yeah. That's Tyrantosaurus. Tyrantosaurus yeah. Rex, Rex, like my dog. <laughs> like, it's like a, Oedipus. It's a name that is enjoyable. It's cool. And it's very accessible. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, whenever I see one of those like 15 syllable names, there's always a part of me that goes, Come on. Yeah. No one's going to say that except for scientists. And now, even then. You have now eliminated the discussion for this outside of only research. Mm -hmm. And so this dinosaur just has a history to it and therefore now is very nostalgic. And it is just very marketable. It's a big predator, which is big is cool. Predators are cool. Yep. So it's got a lot of that that. It's got a lot going for it to be popularized. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that it's accessible. Yeah. It's easy to see. It's easy to recognize. It's easy to pronounce. That's a really good point. And to assuage any worries that we're being like, that, that this is us saying like, here are all the reasons that people might find it popular. I have a T-Rex section on my shelf. Oh no. T-Rex is awesome. I love T-Rex. I've got a whole bunch of Lego <sighs> T-Rexes. And toy T-Rexes, one transforms. Megatron was the best in Beast Wars because he was a T-Rex. I, my favorite dinosaur, I am on record repeatedly as saying Deinonychus. When I was younger, Carcharodontosaurus was up there. <laughs> but if I was going to make like a top 10 list, T-Rex is almost certainly going to be on that no, list. In the top 10 every time. It's just, it, it really is a very cool animal. And so it's the, it's this fascinating scenario of when it, it's so rare uh, less so in paleontology, but generally so rare that a scientific research subject becomes a public cultural phenomenon. Yes. If this is something that it so sometimes feels like it is almost limited to dinosaurs, space and robotics. <laughs> yeah. Like it very rarely happens so that you have this this creature that is one of our best sources of research information and one of the most popular uh, pop culture animals. That's a really interesting and both beneficial and troubling marriage. And it makes a, a, an episode like this, you know, we joke at the start. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody's been waiting. Everybody, we knew we would eventually do this episode. We all week <laughs> yep. leading up to this, <laughs> I have been like, dude, I'm so excited for this episode. <laughs> it's going to be so much fun. We've been like, oh, finally. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been really like we're excited for it. So, yeah, it's it. T-Rex is cool. And it. I feel like uh, a lot of the complications that come with it, uh, you know, the, the over-researching and the, you know, ho more hotly debated debates and the... Uh, 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 partial misrepresentation for kitschiness but for to the public could be very just could be somewhat compared to like the issues with fame mm -hmm. to where it's like when you become famous 
that unlocks a lot of doors. Oh, it's just tons of people have an unhealthy parasocial relationship with T-Rex. Exactly. Like being famous opens a lot of doors. It allows you to do really cool things, but it also means that it makes it hard to go to the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The hat and the sunglasses aren't really doing it for T-Rex. T-Rex is famous, which means it's opening doors for people to get interested into paleontology and to science in general. It's bringing research funding to dinosaur studies and the bucket loads. It's getting dinosaurs into the media in really cool ways, but it also means that you're getting strong, uninformed opinions about it. You're yeah. getting uh, minor comments in research papers made about it blown way out of proportion in the news. Yep. You're getting every, every fossil <laughs> discovery in the news is somehow related yep. to like researchers found a tiny little tooth of some kind of mammal. Apparently it's really important uh, for mammal research. It lived at the same time as T-Rex. So whilst it was dodging <laughs> the feet they f- researchers discover a new t- Tyrannosaurus Rex sized whale. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Why? Weird. It's just as <laughs> at any way you can loop it around to come into Tyrannosaurus T-Rex Rex is the Olympic sized swimming pool of dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bus lamp. <laughs> so I, I, you know, it's it's I've, I've been excited to talk about tyrannosaurs, their evolutionary history, their science. But I'm also excited to geek out about T-Rex. Oh, absolutely. And I'm glad we got the chance to make to have this cultural discourse about it. I think it's really interesting. I knew this episode was going to go long. Uh, every now and then we have an episode where uh, episode 79, I was like, Will, we're finally doing pterosaurs. It's going to be a long one. Buckle in. Buck, strap in. <laughs> Hydrate. <laughs> Uh, This has been a lengthy discussion. Hopefully people have very much enjoyed it. We have one more thing to do before we wrap up. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that one of the benefits uh, we offer to our patrons who support us at a certain level on Patreon is the ability to ask us questions to answer here on the podcast. If you are a patron and you subscribe at the family level or higher, you should receive an email message that gives you a link to a form where you can submit a question to send to us. If you are a patron of that level and you didn't get the link to the form, let us know and we'll send you the link to the form. Will. Yes. Tell us what our question is today. Our question is from Hobart. Hello, Hobart. Who says, I was interviewing a paleontologist about a triceratops he was constructing. We noticed that the humerus on both sides were different sizes. He is confident that these two bones belong to the same specimen, but although the length of the bones was the same, there was significant difference in girth. Is this a common occurrence in fossils, or is this a weird example? Very interesting question. Uh, Funnily enough, I would... uh, My answer is it is a weird example, but also not actually an uncommon occurrence in bones. Uh, That sounds like a very extreme, potentially case yeah but it is not at all unusual for skeletons of animals uh modern or fossil to be asymmetrical especially oftentimes uh as a result of some sort of injury or uh, some growth defect or something like that so the idea of the arm bones being different sizes on either side makes me think of cases that i've heard of where an animal might have an injury on one foot, so it favors the other arm. That's exactly what I was thinking. If you're not putting as much weight and you're not putting as much strain on one of your limbs, it's not going to beef up as much, or the other one's going to have to compensate. You're skipping leg day, but only for that one leg. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this you see this um, where we talked about this a bit in episode 84, paleopathology with our friend Laura, 
where, yeah, an, an, an injury might cause an animal to walk in a weird way or hold itself in a weird way. I learned uh, recently that apparently elephants often get weird shapes in their vertebrae because there's just so much weight. And if you're using your limbs at all differently, you're putting a ton of uneven weight on your back mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it warps the bones back there. So yeah, an injury on one side could lead to an underdeveloped uh, one arm or an overdeveloped the other arm or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's your bones respond to the stress put on them. And so if you're using them in a new or different way or not using them, the bones respond. Yeah. Their growth changes. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's super common, uh, especially extreme cases uh, I don't think are very common. I probably Laura listed a few examples in episode 84, uh, which people can go back and listen to for some examples. But having weird asymmetries is not at all uncommon Yeah, uh, in modern or fossil animals. Well, and Sounds like a cool specimen. Oh, absolutely. You also can find examples of various animals, us included, being, you know, handed. You know, yeah, that's true. Right-handed or left-handed. So if, if they do a task, like, you know... If that if try if we find out that Triceratops dug for stuff every now and then with their yeah, front dug limb, for water or, or tubers and they favored one you know yeah. it, it's, I'm a I'm right footed so I I do it with this and we see it in athletes for sure you know things like that like yeah. if you're doing extreme tasks and you tend to favor one side it could cause a difference I I don't know if it would cause as notable, you know, instantly a difference, but right, right. you can have asymmetry in behavior that causes asymmetry in anatomy. Yeah. You can also have growth defects. You can also have injuries that cause a bone to be thicker as it healed or something or like some, that. Or, you know, that it didn't develop fully, you know, so that you have an underdeveloped yeah. limb. You have a, a Nemo limb. So, yeah. Thanks, Hobart. That's a great question. Absolutely. Thanks to everybody who is on our Patreon and supports us. Thanks to everybody who listens and supports us. Thanks to all one million of you who downloaded our episode. I know it's not a million. But we have uh, going on 200 episodes of released stuff in our podcast. But thanks to the hundreds of thousands of you who are downloading our stuff. Uh, that is very exciting. We really appreciate everyone who supports us. It means a lot. It really, really does. As always, if you have questions or comments or there are topics you want us to cover in future episodes like the many, many people who requested this one, reach out to us. We are on the social media. We are we have a blog where we put up posts for each episode that have extra links and images and more information that you can explore. We are on the YouTube where we upload all of our episodes as videos that are just you can listen to. And you can email us at commondescentpodcast at gmail.com. All of these are valid ways to reach out to us and give us a comment, give us some feedback, uh, request upcoming episodes. Tell us why you think T-Rex is cool. Yeah, or not. <laughs> uh, let's start a heated debate in yeah. the comment section. That's what... Mm -hmm. T-Rex, yay or nay? T <laughs> Tell us your favorite thing about Nano Tyrannus and its feathers. <laughs> <laughs> Backs out of the room. <laughs> Smoke grenade. <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight. Next episode uh, will almost certainly not be an episode uh, quite as uh, often requested, but it'll also be cool and fun. Yeah, we hope. So stay tuned for that. And with that, it is very late here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So we're going to head out of this room and go to bed. The rest of you go on with the rest of your day or night or whatever it is you're doing listening to this podcast. Join us next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.